You're listening to Resolution Radio. ResolutionRDO.com You're listening to the Liberty News Radio Network, and this is the Political Cesspool. The Political Cesspool, known across the South and worldwide as the South's foremost populist conservative radio program. And here to guide you through the murky waters of the political cesspool is your host, James Edwards. Welcome one and all to another live broadcast of TPC. I'm your host, James Edwards, along with Keith Alexander. We have this week and next before we wrap up Confederate History Month 2023. Coming up. Got a bonus week. We do, yes, that's right. There's a bonus Saturday, five of them this month. Uh, so a little bonus there for Confederate History Month. It all wraps up next week, but not before we talk to Gene Andrews tonight, the caretaker of the Nathan Bedford Forest Boyhood Home right here in Tennessee. He's going to be back with and us to talk about the South's greatest warrior and Neil Kumar, former candidate for Congress, who is now in his final year at the University of Arkansas School of Law. He's going to be back with us to discuss his chapter, his contribution to the book we've been promoting all month, The Honorable Cause of Free South. But I'll tell you, before we get to those two gentlemen and before we wrap up this special series next week, we've got a lot of news to cover this hour. Two very big stories. This is part of TPC's standard fare. And after we get clear of Confederate History Month, we'll be back to doing the the usual routine and the usual coverage of current events and news and headlines uh, for the full show Same as you are drill. accustomed to. That's right. We'll see if we can fall back into to, to doing the, the normal routine after two months of special series. But here, Keith, let's just get right down to it. That's what's coming up. We don't have a minute to waste, barely enough time to tell you what's happening tonight. Top story, I think, uh, this week is the indictments that were handed down in Charlottesville. Now, uh, a little bit earlier today, I actually talked on the phone with Richard Barnett. He was the one uh, of the January Sixers who, in that iconic picture, put his foot up on Nancy Pelosi's desk. I heard that the prosecution was asking for 47 years. And the electric chair. (laughs) Basically a death sentence for somebody in his 60s, if that's in fact what they get. Uh, But... There you have it. The, a U.S. jury convicted a man of putting his feet on Pelosi's desk. Now, what they actually called it was, they said he was guilty of felony obstruction of official proceedings, civil disorder, and theft of government property. He took a note that was addressed to Nancy off of her desk and took it outside as, as a little souvenir. And, okay, you know, hey, uh, maybe there should be some punishment for that. But I don't know if a life sentence is fitting of the crime. And believe me, he notices that BLM and Antifa terrorists can literally burn down cities and not even be arrested at all. Now, uh, obstruction of official proceedings, that's what they called what happened on January 6th. They said it was the greatest threat uh, to our democracy since the war between the states. They call it the Civil War. But, as we mentioned earlier this month on the program, when support groups of the regime did the exact same thing, obstructing the official proceedings of the Tennessee state legislature and the Kentucky state legislature. You know what the media called that? 
They didn't call it the greatest threat to our democracy. They said, this is what democracy looks like, and we need to see this every week. You have Alvin Bragg, the guy who's going after Donald Trump. He said he's not going to prosecute theft in New York anymore. He said that is a crime of poverty, and we need equity, whatever in the hell that means. In Chicago, you had the black Marxist mayor up in Chicago uh, say he's going to defund the police. If you commit a crime, they're going to send a counselor to you, not a cop. And what did you have as a result? Total chaos in Chicago last week, borderline anarchy the new mayor says they're kids and they deserve a break had a mob of blacks about five deep in a ring around a white woman just beating the hell out of her and uh so that's where we're at you know you're gonna sit a counselor jamarcus you know you shouldn't have beaten the hell out of that white woman scott adams was right black criminality is skyrocketing in the cities especially in the cities inundated on social media i am inundated every day with countless occurrences of it you cannot live with these people you cannot live in this system there is no future for our people here. A godly people who want law and order, that's not the United States. You can forget about it. And as I've said, it's a mantra now. I don't want to make America great again. I want to leave America behind and learn from uh, the mistakes there. But so this guy, you know, facing life in prison for the, the situation up there with putting his feet on Pelosi's desk. And now you have Charlottesville, which is what we're here to talk about right now. All of that leads us back to Charlottesville. Six years later, six years after the fact, here's the story out of the local Charlottesville CBS News affiliate, and it reads, several people have been indicted of, on charges of, uh, connected to the torch-lit march that occurred at the University of Virginia in 2017. An Albemarle County grand jury issued indictments of burning an object with the intent to intimidate. That's the crime. That's the charge, at least. Now, according to a release, these uh, indictments allege an offense date of August the 11th, 2017. That was the night before the Unite the Right rally. That was the night of the Tiki Torch March. It's a Class 6 felony. And anyone who's, according to Virginia state law, anyone who's convicted of lighting a Tiki Torch with the intent to intimidate is facing five years in prison. So let's recap, folks. Five years in prison for marching around with the $3 Tiki Torch that they bought at Walmart. You can burn down cities if you're a member of a support group of the regime, but you cannot light a $3 tiki torch at Walmart and walk around a public university. So uh, you've, this, is, this is where we're at. Uh, the process, the, re the, release, uh, the, the release, the article here says that uh, this process is followed no matter how much time has passed or where the alleged offenders may currently be located. So you ask, is there a statute of limitations on lighting a tiki torch? No because they're charging it as a felony. And in the state of Virginia, there is no statute of limitations on any sort of felony. Uh, so apparently it is a felony to light a tiki torch. Now, obviously this is some law that they use to target the Klan. Burning, uh, they call it you know, cross-burning. I think the Klan actually calls it cross-lighting. Now, I know that because I'm the leader of the Klan, according to the Detroit News. Now, I lost that libel case spectacularly, of course, and that's the point. The media could say anything they want to about you. You have no recourse. Doesn't matter if it's true or not true. The courts can charge you with anything. Doesn't matter if it's true or not true. And you have zero recourse if you're a, dis a dissident. Keith? Well, have you noticed <clears throat> the big difference that has developed between rural areas and urban areas in America? Okay? <clears throat> All of the badness comes from urban areas, either big cities or college towns. That's the uh, pockets of Marxism, cultural Marxism in America. We've got to understand that there are steps that can be taken by states, which for the most part are run by people that think more like us than like them. And they can take steps against 
the city governments that are doing all these wild-eyed, crazy, uh, lunatic, left-wing uh, initiatives against normal, everyday people and people that protest the degeneracy that has taken over the left. This is what it, it, what's happening with the people that were in the Tiki Torch March is called lawfare. Same thing is happening to Clarence Thomas. They're trying to go after him. They're trying to punish him using the law. Same thing with Donald Trump. <clears throat> Our whole judicial system, and particularly uh, legal system with things like trial by jury, supposedly safeguards, they're no longer safeguards. They are rubber stamps for the left. And we've got to take steps against these uh, basically uh, – you know, affronts to America's tradition of uh, judiciary and, uh, and, law and justice. And what, the way that we're going to do that is through the state legislatures. We'll let you know more about this after these words from our sponsors. Find your inner rebel at Dixie Republic, the world's largest Confederate store, located in Traveler's Rest, South Carolina. The anti-white, anti-Christ, anti-Southern world ends at the asphalt. Welcome to God's country. Log on to DixieRepublic.com to view our Southern merchandise, from flags to t-shirts to artwork. At the store, browse through our extensive collection of belt buckles and have a custom-made leather belt handcrafted in our Johnny Rebs gun and leather shop. That's DixieRepublic.com, where you can meet all of your Southern needs. While you're waiting, drop by our Confederate corner for a free cup of coffee and good conversation. Remember, there are no strangers here, just friends who haven't met yet. Dixie Republic, we're not just a roadside attraction, we're a destination for our people. For more information, visit DixieRepublic.com. Why does the left lie constantly? Because they get spiritual power from lying. The lies come from Satan, the father of lies. John 8, 44. Here's how the political lying process works. Satan provides the beast with a lie. Then the more they use the lie, the more spiritual power they get. Look, the media is a lie multiplier, and this multiplication gives more evil, spiritual power to the beast. And that can overwhelm and even deceive the body of Christ, especially when the body is being disobedient to the head. The churches today are incorporated, so they're subordinate to human government. They obey the beast and do nothing to restore our national relationship with God. And the government shall be on his shoulders, Isaiah 9, 6. That verse is not for the present-day church. Rather, it is for the end-time church, the body of the Lion of Judah, a message from Christ Kingdom Ministries. We're talking a part about the Charlottesville indictments that have come down now six years after the fact. Five years for lighting a tiki torch. Uh, 
40 years for putting your feet on Pelosi's desk. This brings us back to the overall theme that we're talking about here during this April of Confederate History Month, the idea of a national divorce, which now 44% of Republicans say they are in favor of. <laughs> I wonder how... And many, wonder why well, when you see things like this. I, I was just about to say, Keith, and then I want to turn it back over to you. Now, if, if January 6th uh, taught us any lessons, I, I was imagining that the new DA in Charlottesville is going to go after everyone. And I, I supposed that the only reason the system didn't go after the Unite the Right participants like this back when it happened six years ago was because that they didn't have control of the DOJ. you got to remember, during the Unite the Right rally in 2017, Trump was still president. And frankly, things have deteriorated much more now than even as recently as 2017. And then I was thinking, you know, well, that plus they've been busy rounding up, mopping up the floor with the January 6th protesters. But now that they've perfected the craft... I assumed it was their time to circle back to Charlottesville. But I, I learned that it wasn't just that. It wasn't just that. What happened was, I was informed, that a Soros-backed district attorney, uh, a candidate for district attorney, a Democrat, defeated the incumbent DA in the Charlottesville area. And he hammered the Republican with attacks that it had... Uh, uh, that he had not indicted the violent criminals uh, that attended the rally. And I'm sure he didn't. I don't think he indicted any of the uh, anti Who would have imagined that you could? But that's not what he was talking about. The Democratic Soros-backed DA candidate, who is now the DA there, was attacking the Republican for not going after the UTR people, okay? And so now he's delivering on his promise. And I mean, for God's sake, folks, they're trying to put the president in prison. They're trying to put Trump in prison. And wait till he gets an all-black jury when he gets indicted in Atlanta. We were they're talking about this earlier. They're trying to put Clarence Thomas, uh, one of the justices on the Supreme Court, in jail. Well, It's crazy. Uh, you know, we were talking about this earlier tonight during pre-show prep, Keith. You always hear back in the 50s and the 60s how, how, how it couldn't, how it would have been impossible for a black to have gotten a, a fair trial with an all right, uh, an all white jury, as if the creators of laws and courts and government itself couldn't be trusted to be just. Well, now we're living under the law of the jungle, and I would love to see how much uh, Trump can be, uh, how much Trump can expect to get. A fair trial and an all-black jury in Atlanta when that comes. But I say all of this, all of this, it, it just all is baked into the cake. And we need this, though. We need this. They, they've gone after three so far. They've indicted three people. And frankly, I didn't know of any of the people that they've indicted. I've never heard any of their names before. And if they stick with just these three, then I think it's going to be mostly just political posturing. I assumed that they would cast a wide net and go after everyone because, again, after all, that's what they did with January 6th. It'll be interesting to see if more arrests are made. But still... This sort of prosecution, this is something Rich Hamblin uh, texted me earlier this week, and he's spot on. This sort of prosecution is designed to instill fear among the target population. And it's to chill the that, expression of First Amendment rights. That's it. It's our version of the great purge of Stalinist times, minus the bullets, for now. And it's just as the big mustache himself said, give me the man and I'll find the crime. And that's what's going on here. Total political persecution, plain and simple. But in the end, here's where you have hope, ladies and gentlemen. And here's why I'm not too dejected about all of this. In the end, this is necessary. Every action that is taken like this guarantees that more and more people will adopt that post-United States mindset that is going to be absolutely necessary for our survival. See, you can't pretend that this is customary. This is business as usual. You've got to react to this. More and more people will react to it. For example, look at what's happened to the Tiki Torch protesters. Did anything like that happened to the protesters at Selma and in Birmingham at, uh, you know, any of the civil rights, the sainted civil rights uh, 
protests that basically made people like the Unite the Right protesters think that there was something sacred in the American experience about peaceful protest and that they could do it and expect the same treatment that the blacks and the Jews got during the civil rights movement back in the 50s and 60s. They found out right away that they do not play by those rules on the other side. The left is going to try to wipe us out. They are Jewish-inspired. Jews are not part of the founding stock of America, and therefore they have no respect for the founders of this nation and for the principles and the institutions that are part of the foundation of America. If they, they, they think they had to be inferior people because they weren't Jews. See, this is what we've got to understand. We're dealing with a group of people, Eastern Europeans, that are, I guess you would say, totalitarians, authoritarians in every way. And people are going to realize, you know, like uh, Dorothy said in The Wizard of Oz, we're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> that, uh, that, that this, is, this is what's happened. You know, America, the America that we grew up in no longer exists. And it's basically urban you, cesspools. You don't say like against the rest of the nation. And you know what? There is a firewall between us and them, and it's called the state governments. The state governments are still, for the most part, the soundest institutions of our government, and we can turn the state government against these cities, choke off their money, and make them squeal like a pig, as they said in uh, Deliverance, okay? Yeah, you know, you're certainly going to have to get more stout-hearted state governments than we've got now, but I was on a show earlier tonight with Michael Gaddy, who's going to be our guest next week to round out our Confederate History Month series. We were talking about the state governments in the South, I do believe, are certainly better than their counterparts in California, New York, Illinois, and places like that. They're going to have to get a lot stronger, but you're seeing some strength in Florida, and even uh, in, in, in a weaker version, even here in Tennessee, not from the governors themselves necessarily, or at least, well, DeSantis is a different story, but um, Bill Lee, obviously, no good. But the General Assembly at large in Tennessee is all right when compared to its counterparts, and they're going well, to have to get have, They had the stronger. guts to take steps against these left-wingers that were trying to use the Covenant uh, school shooting as a way of, of, you know, striking a blow for transgenderism. And then when it all came out, they started to fall back on, oh, we just want gun control. But that's not the way. That's why they went against Kentucky and Tennessee, because Kentucky and Tennessee had both passed laws in their General Assembly that said that you could not, uh, you know, have trans, uh, gender-changing surgery on any person under 18 years old. Yeah, well, see, this goes back to how can you have union in this country? This, uh, the, the state of Tennessee, or excuse me, state of Florida recently passed the, the law that you cannot have the gender reassignment surgery, so-called gender reassignment. You're never reassigning your gender. You can't mutilate your genitals if you're under 18. In Washington State, I heard that it is a law that you cannot stop them from doing it. If you're a parent who tries to oppose your kid, you're a doctor, you try to oppose a, a, you know, a 10-year-old coming in your office saying, you know, lop off my... And see, this is what's happening to America worldwide as a result of the Russian-Ukraine war. Russia and China now say nobody wants to align themselves with the United States because the United States stands for gender reassignment surgeries, as they call it euphemistically, uh, gay pride parades, sexual depravity of every sort imaginable, and even some new ones are coming up with now. 
basically, if you want to be with America and Western Europe, you've got to be for sexual depravity. And nobody wants to ally themselves with sexual depravity. And guess what? America is no longer the number one hegemon in the world. It's Russia and China. They are basically raking it in now. They are, they, they are on a roll. And America, being run by woke nincompoops and lunatics, is basically squandering uh, the position America had in the world. But you know what? That's probably good for Americans because we are in the Western Hemisphere, separated by two large oceans, two large moats. And we really had nothing to gain and never did gain anything from getting involved in Eastern European or Eastern Hemispheric politics, World War I, World War II, whatever. All we have is the hatred of most of the world for getting involved in those things. And we can now get away from that and we can use our wealth and our energy and our ingenuity to make life better for us okay. here in America. We're going to shift gears after this next break and get into the tale of two interracial shootings, how the media treated a white-on-black shooting versus how it treated a black-on-white shooting. Both occurrences happened within the past week. Totally different treatments. We're going to tell you all about it after the break. But first, if you are interested in reading more about the Democratic Communist coup in Charlottesville, our friend Ann Wilson-Smith, who contributed one of the chapters in the new book, The Honorable Cause of Free South. Uh, she has also written a brand new article for vdare.com, one of our daily reads, the great Peter Brimelow's website. Uh, it, uh, it was just posted on the 20th, so just a couple of days ago. The title of the article is Democrat Communist Coup Intensifies Soros Prosecutor Jim Hengley indicts Charlottesville Tiki Torch demonstrators six years later. Now, we gave you our opinion and commentary on the matter. If you want to read more, go to VDARE, go back a couple of days, and Wilson Smith writing for Peter Brimelow there. And she wrote a chapter in the book that we hope you know you'll what? get. <laughs> I hope that the constabulary in the rest of Red State America does not allow them to extradite those great. people to uh, Charlottesville. Now, three of them have already been sent back. So we'll see. Protecting your liberties. You're listening to Liberty News Radio. USA News. I'm Jerry Barmesh. A major sewage spill closed many Los Angeles beaches on this Earth Day. This Long Beach resident is not happy about the situation. I'm just questioning where's our tax dollars going? Beaches are dirty, water's polluted. It's been like that for a while, so it's disappointing. An estimated 250,000 gallons of sewage spilled into the Los Angeles River on Thursday due to an equipment malfunction. Sanitation crews are working to clean up the mess. If you're wondering how to properly dispose of expired or unused prescription drugs, here's the answer. Today is National Prescription Drug Tank Back Day. The purpose of it is to give you a safe, convenient, and responsible means of disposing of prescription drugs so that you're not putting them into the water supply or the landfills. It's also to educate the general public about the potential abuse of medications. You can hit up Google for a location near you, and they will take any kind of drug, no questions asked. 
I'm Corey Myers. The U.S. Embassy is warning American citizens in Sudan to shelter in place until further notice. Sudan's military says it has agreed to help evacuate citizens from other countries, including the United States, as fighting rages between rival groups in the capital city of Khartoum. Thousands of Americans are believed to be in the Sudan, and one U.S. citizen is among at least 400 people killed so far. The Texas Senate is passing a bill that would require the Ten Commandments to be displayed in school classrooms. The bill would force every public elementary and secondary school to, quote, display in a conspicuous place in each classroom of the school a durable poster of the Ten Commandments from the Christian Bible. Opponents of the bill say the law directly contradicts the separation of church and state. This is USA News. Let's see, if something costs less, but people are happier with it, that sounds like something to look into, and that's MediShare. Maybe you've heard switching to MediShare to pay for health care can save the typical family 500 bucks a month, and that's huge, but it's also true that people are way more satisfied after making the switch, too, the customer satisfaction rate for MediShare is double that of the typical health insurance plan. Double. MediShare works. It's been around for more than a quarter century, and members have shared more than $3 billion of each other's bills. People love having telehealth and a huge nationwide PPO network. So, yeah, you can save a ton and like it better. Imagine being happy with how you're taking care of your health care. So if you're self-employed or part of the gig economy or you just want a plan you're happy with, you can call Right now, and get a price within two minutes. A very, very smart use of two minutes. Here's the number you need. 833-34-BIBLE. That's 833-34-BIBLE. 833-34-BIBLE. Switch over and talk about uh, the tale of two interracial shootings, as I mentioned a moment ago. But first, yes, indeed, the Charlottesville people being indicted for lighting tiki torches. Why wasn't the black guy who turned an aerosol can into a flamethrower that he was shooting at Unite the Right participants? I wonder if he got indicted. And I wonder why John Lewis and all those people that uh, started marching across the Selma Bridge in violation of a court order were not prosecuted by the uh, mm-hmm. United States government or by the uh, Alabama Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, you go to Selma now and try to live there. Tell me if that was a good uh, – if the, the fruit of that corrupt tree was good for the city of Selma. Uh, it's unlivable, unlivable, uh, uninhabitable. The worst thing that can happen to the left is for them to win because when they are winning, people see just how morally uh, bankrupt their ideas are. All right, now – White, I got two headlines here from CNN. One involves an 84-year-old white man who shot a black teenager who was on his doorstep in the middle of the night. Some reports say the black uh, teen, there's a lot of euphemisms for black, uh, for a young black male. They can young be teens, scholar. they can be teens, th- uh, they can be joggers. This time they referred to him as a scholar. He's a scholar because he was of high school age, so he's a scholar. But the 84-year-old man said he was in fear for his life. Some reports say that the 
black uh, teenager was trying to get in the house. Some say he was just standing there. The police reports got in the middle. So who knows? Uh, but I got two headlines here. Now, another story involves a black, a 24-year-old black man who allegedly shot in the head a 6-year-old white girl and her father because a basketball rolled into his yard. CNN carried both headlines and see if you can spot the difference in just the headlines, not to mention how the entire story the was covered. Tone. Here's the headline for the first one. White homeowner accused of shooting a black teen who rang his doorbell, turns himself in, and is released on bail. Okay? Here's the other headline. Suspect who allegedly shot six-year-old neighbor and her parents in North Carolina has been apprehended. <laughs> so what's the difference? The difference is one person is already found guilty before he's even uh, been, uh, you know, before magistrate, and the other one they're suggesting has no guilt. No, that well maybe, but that's not what I was getting at. What I was getting at is the race of the perpetrator and the race of the victim are mentioned when it's white on black, not mentioned at all when it's the other way around. Now Lauren Witzke was covering this with uh, her friend Edward Zoll uh, just a couple of days ago. We'll let them break it down here for one minute. Uh, here's a clip underway in Kansas City, Missouri. There is an elderly man, 84-year-old Andrew Lester, who's being accused of felony armed assault. This man, all he did was defend his property when he felt like his life was in danger. This has led to a brand new, I think, a race war brewing in Kansas City. So it's 10.30 at night. He hears something downstairs, goes down, sees that somebody's trying to get into his house. And he ended up being afraid. I mean, he was afraid. It was a self-defense thing. And he, he feared for his life. So after that, the police were called. They investigated and they saw that there was no wrongdoing. They let him return home and everything was fine. It wasn't until a mob showed up at his house and started protesting the next day is when they actually decided to file charges for an arrest. This is mob rule that is deciding the judicial process in the United States of America. Here they are protesting in front of this guy's house and calling for his arrest. And you know what was sick, Edward, is that they went and found his grandson and then brought his grandson on to CNN to disavow and call his grandfather like a white supremacist. What a all right. So, I mean, you know, she said it all right millennials, there. I tell you that. See, they know they have transformed the millennials that are in the schools today into being woke automatons, robots. All right. That, that, that's, that, that's, that's still, I think the key is the police came the night of the shooting and they let him go. It wasn't until after the mob justice came down and Amanda lynching that they came back well, and, and arrested him. That's what Lauren said. It's mob rule. What the judicial process takes its cues from the mob, not from the law. Now, uh, aforementioned V-Dare, let's go back to V-Dare. V-Dare had an article up that found that more white people have been killed by blacks in the last 50 years than American soldiers were killed in the First World War. Now, think about that. And here's here's... Interracial violent crime incidents in 2018. Uh, we're using the uh, Bureau of Justice statistics here. So in 2018, there were 59,778 white on black violent crimes. That doesn't necessarily mean murder, obviously, although murder is included in that. 58, uh, excuse me, 59,778. Black on white violent crime incidents in 2018. Uh, 547,948, so basically 10 to 1. 10 to 1. 
And the media will only cover it and only fan the flames when it fits the narrative. There are countless videos of young black males going up to doors with guns in their hands in very similar situations. And Kansas City is another city that has been uh, certainly ravaged by diversity. And uh, I have seen countless videos this week of doorbell cameras catching black males that fit the description of the person who was shot going up to the door with gun in hand. Now, in this situation, I don't know if he was innocent. I don't know if he was trying to get in. I don't know if he wasn't. Uh, we'll, we would like to think and hope that the local law enforcement will be able to discern the facts and justice will be uh, carried out one way or another. It's not even about this one incident. What it's about to me is a bunch of blacks come down, threaten violence uh, and disorder, and, and, and they cause an arrest to be made. And, and that the media would focus on this, that they would focus on this when it's the one out of the 10 instead of the 10 out of the, the, the 10 to 1. Well, the left-wing media has already got this old uh, white man, uh, uh, you know, you know, he is already guilty as charged, even before he is being officially charged. They know that all they need to know is the race of the parties, and they know which side they're coming down on. What this t shows you, is the wisdom of our forefathers in having racially segregated neighborhoods. This is what all of this violence that you see, and this is a symptom of it or, or, or an example of it, what happened in Kansas City, is what our ancestors were trying to protect us from by having a de jure racially segregated system. It worked much better for everybody. Black people have not done well under desegregation and under integration. In fact, the average black person lives in a hellish environment now, specifically because of the victories of the civil rights movement. And this is an example of it. See, uh, so many black kids are killed now that weren't killed back during segregation times because of the license that they have uh, they perceive that they have the right to go and act out and do crazy things. And as a result, they're getting killed, they're getting shot, they're getting maimed, stuff like this. They do not have bright futures. They're going to jail and spending a large part of their lives in jail. Oh, all because of the blessed civil rights movement. We would have been so much better back in segregation. We were, and also... This man would have been much safer back in the old days. He wouldn't have to be confronting, uh, a, you know, an intruder who might be wishing to do him harm back in the old days. That just would not have happened. And like I said, whether he was or wasn't, I'm not saying that the, the black teenager, or the scholar, as they're calling him, deserved to be shot. I don't know if he was trying to get in, if he intended to break in and rob or kill the guy, or if he was just, as they say, he thought he was at his brother's house. Well... <laughs> I mean, okay, maybe he maybe forgot where, 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 where did his brother live, Pratt? Maybe he forgot where his brother lived or whatever was going on there. Maybe he didn't deserve, you know, deserve it. And, again, let justice be done. But it's the media's treatment of this when at the exact same week they don't even ask those a, questions. a black male uh, be arrested for shooting a six-year-old girl in the head. Now, at least she survived. Brad Griffin, who always has great takes, at least she survived. The father who was shot in the back while trying to protect his daughter is still in bad shape. He's in the hospital. You can donate to their fundraiser. If you go to OccidentalDescent.com, 
You can find the story and donate to their gifts and go. By the way, I believe she she's raised for the girl who was shot in the head by the black man. They've raised eighty thousand dollars. Society has given eighty thousand dollars to this GoFundMe campaign. The black uh, scholar who was shot by the 84-year-old man who said he was, and he told the police, I was in fear for my life. I don't know if he would be in fear of his life if just a, he turned on the light and there was a black man just standing there, you know, looking like he was at the wrong place. I don't know what was going on there. But the black man has raised $4 million. So by, well, it tells you who has the money in America. Who do you think is given to that $4 million, by the way? Oh, yeah. I, I imagine they it's are. Certain, it's white. It's, it's, it's self. It's and I imagine it's a lot of Jews, too. Well, I doubt it. I doubt it. I don't think so. I think it's going to be mostly Mostly well, it's it's going to be people that have been misled by the regime into thinking that black people are being tormented and persecuted by whites, but that whites are never tormented or persecuted by blacks. We'll give you a little more on this, and then we'll start transitioning in to back into our special series with Gene Andrews and Neil Kumar in the second and third hours, respectively. Stay tuned. It's going by fast already. We're not going to take our foot off the, the gas, I can tell you that. We'll be right back. The Honorable Cause of Free South is a collection of 12 essays written by Southern Nationalist authors. The book explores topics such as what is the Southern Nation, what is Southern Nationalism, and how can we achieve a free and independent Dixie. The Honorable Cause answers questions on our own terms. The book invites readers to understand for themselves why a free and independent Dixie is both preferable and possible. The book pulls in some of the biggest producers of pro-South content, including James Edwards, the host and creator of The Political Cesspool, Ann Wilson-Smith, author of Charlottesville Untold, Arkansas congressional candidate and activist Neil Kumar, host and creator of the Dissident Mama podcast, Rebecca Dillingham, author of A Walk in the Park, My Charlottesville Story, Identity Dixies, Patrick Martin, and yours truly, Michael Hill, founder and president of the League of the South, as well as several other authors. The Honorable Cause is available now at Amazon.com. As you are aware, America is divided over every fault line possible. This is intentionally fostered by those who do not love God, family, or country. We believe a peaceful future as a free people absolutely depends on civility. Clarion Call for Civility is looking for funding and volunteers at every level to make our hopes and efforts a reality. Please donate, sign our pledge, and help us in our sacred cause. Please visit callforcivility.com for more details. Callforcivility.com fighting for the soul of liberty and true pursuit of happiness for everyone. Freedom Fest 2023 is coming to the home of the blues and birthplace of rock and roll, Memphis, Tennessee, July 12th through 15th. It's the ultimate summit for liberty, educating and empowering through art, music, film, and comedy while promoting economic freedom and highlighting today's political issues. Use promo code ROUND50 to save 50 bucks off the current rate. Reserve your spot at freedomfest.com. See you in Memphis. Talking about the tale of two interracial shootings, how the media has treated these things. One just wall-to-wall blanket coverage. One very little coverage at all. And what little coverage it got, CNN did cover both. They were sure to mention the race in one and not the other, depending on if the narrative Blanket condemnation of the white man who did the shooting in one and nothing at all approaching condemnation for the black man that shot the white person. It was pretty much just matter of fact. 
what who what where when and why but the racial angle didn't come in at all even though it's 10 times more likely to to go down the way it did in North Carolina and not in Kansas City and of course there's a big difference than saying you fear for your life again conflicting reports as to whether or not the the and scholar and was and trying and to get in the your six-year-old neighbor had a ball bounce into your yard yeah and then get shot in the head now uh, and then CNN, how disgusting these worms are to find this guy's grandson as, as Rich Hamblin, who, who is uh, always good for a quote, Rich saying no revolution is as successful as one that causes children to denounce their fathers, their grandfather in this case. That's the, the, the state of society today. And, and you know, by the way, you're going to think this is a joke. <laughs> they found this guy, this grandson's social media account, and he's got cornrows in his hair and he publicly proclaims that he is a Satanist who is in favor of the transgender LGBTQIA+. Uh, he actually worships Satan. So, yeah, What a stellar citizen in the making we have there. Well, any event, uh, that's, uh, you'd have to take somebody of that character and caliber to, to do what he did. Uh, calling his granddad a racist, you know, why, well, what did he do? Throwing his own flesh and blood under the bus. What a kid. For a pat on the back by Don Lemon, uh, literally. So... The story out of North Carolina, though, same week, you know, why is the media covering one and not the other? North Carolina man allegedly shot a six-year-old girl, her parents, and an additional neighbor after a basketball rolled into his yard. Now, Brad Griffin, back to his commentary on this. I'm reading from OccidentalDescent.com. Again, you can go there and donate to this little girl. She looks just like my brother's daughter. It's it's uncanny. And... Uh, Sweet and innocent as you could imagine. When I first heard about this, Brad wrote, I thought the little girl had been killed like Cannon Hynett, who was shot dead also in North Carolina while riding his bicycle a few years ago. Remember the black neighbor just walked up behind him, shot him in the back of the head. The dangers of racial integration in your residential neighborhood. This is what this points out both Cannon and this little girl. It isn't an isolated incident. Uh, Brad continues in Alabama. A black woman recently shot and killed a 13-year-old white boy who was playing in her yard. She claims it was self-defense. The story was also predictably buried by the media while this Ralph Yarl, that's the scholar we've been talking about in Kansas City, while that shooting has dominated the news cycle all week. And it's, a, it's an endless loop. Uh, th these shootings continue to happen. White victims are buried by the media. Black victims are used to fan the flames and incite riots. And manifestos are either published or not published. From, uh, to the public, depending on how they serve the na the narrative. And uh, it's, it's one of the commenters said on, on Occidental Descent. Shot by, uh, by a black man because a basketball rolled into the yard. Now, now you know why our ancestors believed in, in segregation. Absolutely. See, this is, you know, uh, we have nothing that we can uh, believe in anymore from the mainstream news media. The mainstream news media is no longer a journalistic organization or institution it is a ministry of propaganda pure and simple all right so that's about well i i wasn't going to do this but this is this is awful but you need to hear it you need to hear and see these things uh so this is the girl after she was shot in the head now um obviously she survived uh, but you can see the gaping bullet wound it grazed her two two inches over it blows her head off uh, but uh, he, here is the local coverage of this story, and you'll hear the girl actually talking in this video. Why did you shoot my daddy and me? 
This morning, a six-year-old girl and her parents recovering after they were shot by a neighbor, all because of an errant basketball. Authorities say 24-year-old Robert Lewis Singletary grabbed a gun and approached a group of children after the basketball from their street game rolled into his driveway. According to police, William White, the father of six-year-old Kingsley, noticed Singletary and tried to draw gunfire toward himself to protect the children before being shot in the back. He is still in the hospital. So, you know, that that's that's the reality of diversity. That's the reality of living in a diverse society. In an integrated neighborhood. And for all of the people who are feigning disgust and contempt, where is their sympathy and compassion for this story? Not one self-hating white, not one person who is filled to the gills with white guilt is going to have anything to say about this. And all of these so-called white leaders and Jewish leaders that are supporting black rights and black interests and whatnot, they wouldn't live anywhere near a neighborhood like this. They get as far away from black people as they can. You could see the neighborhood in this uh, news footage, and it's a very lower... It's a, it's a working class slash lower middle class neighborhood. I, I would say, yeah, that's 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 giving it some credit. It, uh, I know but these Unfortunately, white people have to live in those neighborhoods because of... Things like affirmative action that give better jobs to blacks and whites unfairly, normally. And because black people live a charmed life in the law of the United States of America today. And white people, on the other hand, are, you know, they are persecuted and oppressed by our legal system and by our economic system. That's why they're living here in this proximity. And as you can see, it's not just an aesthetic matter. It's a matter of life and death. All of that said, uh, that's just this week's news and just reasons from this last seven-day period as to why we need to be embracing the idea of a national divorce. And don't you know, we have a book out this Confederate History Month, brand new, The Honorable Cause of Freestyle, that tackles the issue of separation in a very responsible way. And it's getting great reviews around the world, not just in Dixie. Sasha Rossmuller, our friend, the writer for the German magazine, commented this in his review, and I'll read it very briefly. The South is rising again. If a manifesto is needed in order to back up this claim, it has already been written. The Honorable Cause of Free South qualifies as a written work for liberation because it addresses not only the head, but also the heart and soul. The reader experiences a resurrection of the southern states and a visionary orientation that is not limited to a nostalgic retrospective. I swear, these reviews elicit a passion that they draw from what they've read. The volume of essays, Sasha continues, breathing devotion and the will to live is nothing less than a piece of literary aesthetic in anticipation of nation building. The 12 authors of the essays, which can almost be read as prayers or declarations of love in their written styles, are born from fervent passions that evoke the authors as grail knights in the Southern struggle for freedom and self-determination. And that is precisely what the authors demand. Sasha concludes, I'll skip to the end here, since rarely anything is given to us as a gift in life, the solution is not only advice, but also a very personal demand. It will require 
mental, physical, and even spiritual commitment to act, as well as write, network, build, protect, congratulate, undermine, beguile, astonish, outlast, do, and succeed. This is required of the remnant. The last essay in this amazing book focuses on the strategic thought, and it is worth reading not just from the perspective of a Southern nationalist, but every nationalist. It is a reminder that the COVID-19 lockdowns, rampant urban criminality, transgender-inspired child mutilations, and abortion are all Yankee policies imposed on Southerners. And it was Southern state governments that have pushed back to the extent that anybody has pushed back. This is why Southern nationalists need to define themselves as a collective movement that simply believes that self-rule is better than rule by New York and California. So that's if you th I think that these reviews are almost pieces of art in their own right Keith that was a fantastic review and that's only part of it you can read the entire thing we posted it yesterday at thepoliticalcesspool.org that's from Sasha Rossmuller I just saw today another review that was written for a French language publication by Remy Tremblay well get that posted up um, be there might be running with it but in any event uh, Remy these reviews are, are just incredible so here, here, here's the thing we would love for you to buy the book. You can buy it on Amazon. It, it would help us some. It would help us more if you ordered an autographed copy through TPC and we sent you instructions in the mail if you're an established owner and how you can do that. You should have gotten a letter about that about a week ago. Uh, and so uh, certainly that would help us out. We need your support during this time of inflation and uh, economic distress. Believe me, it's hit us too. We've had... Um, the first four months of this year are certainly way behind where we were last year at this point. And uh, I know everybody's feeling it at the gas pumps, at the grocery store, at fast food places. But we do need your help to stay on the air. God knows we need to stay on the air. We need to be in this battle. Uh, we've been doing it at a high level for almost 20 years. We've got a lot more to do. A lot more to do. You know, this is a package. This is a present gift wrap for us by the left. We really have to thank the left for being so over the top, being so oppressive, being so absolutely evil in their persecution of us and the what what has happened like for example these shootings uh, the shooting of the little girl and her father in north carolina was that right north carolina was yes okay and uh see there's no gray area you know that, that they're not trying to be subtle about this at all they are sh showing sheer and utter hatred towards us and that is causing a reaction. It's causing a reaction not only here in America, but overseas, all over the world. America can no longer pretend to be the shining city on the hill. It has been taken over by leftist authoritarian thugs that are trying to persecute and prosecute average citizens who are simply taking advantage of their God-given and government-given right to protest government policies. Anybody that tries to live in harmony in this integrated America of today is risking their lives, particularly white people. They are the targets, and they, they're, they're, uh, enemies are not being prosecuted and not being punished for what they do. All right. If I talk anything more about these stories, I'm going to have an aneurysm. We're going to take a break. We're going to regroup. We're going to come back and celebrate the South's greatest warrior with Gene Andrews. 
We're going to be talking about Gene Nathan Andrew, Bedford. the avatar of all things Confederate. <laughs> we'll be talking about Nathan Bedford Forrest with Brother Gene as Confederate History Month rolls on here on TPC. Get the book, everybody. Get the book. We'll be back. Listen, do you hear that sound? It started low, but it's getting progressively louder. Into a crescendo, even louder. Irresistible ending in an ear-splitting blast of mass disruption. That's the sound of America's economic and political systems crashing to the ground. But we have a plan. We will be ready to restore political sanity. We will be ready to answer the call of productive America. We will restore America's industrial base and put America back to work. We will shut down political correctness and restore decency and positive media to America. We will save our constitution, our traditional way of life, our customs, and religion. We will restore sound money and crush the debt-based system of monetary slavery. And we will end America's foreign misadventures. We are the American Freedom Party, and we have a plan. Learn more about us, the American Freedom Party, dot US. You're listening to Resolution Radio, Radio, Radio. ResolutionRDO.com. Hill is proud to announce the release of a new translation, Leon de Grel in Exile, by Jose Luis Jerez Reisco. Readers of The Burning Souls will already be familiar with de Grel's life before and during the Second World War, his service on the Eastern Front, and his involuntary post-war exile in Franco, Spain. This new work tells the story of his life in exile in detail, replete with first-hand accounts from Spanish nationalists and friends of de Grel. During his time in Spain, de Grel did not wallow in sadness. Despite the atrocities inflicted upon him and his family by the victorious Allied powers, he stayed remarkably active in European nationalist politics and left a lasting impression on both his personal friends and those from around the European world who took inspiration from his tenacious idealism. De Grel's enduring legacy in Spain is well-deserved. Such a legacy also deserves to be spread to both sides of the Atlantic and beyond. Antelope Hill is proud to be the first to bring this unparalleled biography to the English reader, Get Leon DeGrell in exile today at antelopehillpublishing.com.
You're listening to the Political Cesspool on ResolutionRDO.com. Call and listen now at 607-203-5423. That's 607-203-5423. You're listening to the Liberty News Radio Network, and this is the Political Cesspool. The Political Cesspool, known across the South and worldwide as the South's foremost populist conservative radio program. And here to guide you through the murky waters of the Political Cesspool is your host, James Edwards. Fifteen years after the Mexican War, many of those same West Point officers would answer the call of duty once again. Political differences so divided our nation that a war between the states was inevitable. Brother against brother, north against south. One of the greatest military geniuses of all times had no formal training, yet he rose from the rank of a private to lieutenant general. His name was Nathan Bedford Forrest. Ladies and gentlemen, sometimes when we do these special series, whether it be March Around the World or Confederate History Month, there are guests making first-time appearances, and there are guests that are there every single year we do it. And Gene Andrews is amongst, uh, can be found among the latter company. He is a mainstay during Confederate History Month. It is always great to talk to Gene Andrews, who is a retired combat officer and history teacher who now serves as the caretaker of the Nathan Bedford Forrest Boyhood Home, and he's back with us once again uh, this year and this night to talk with us about the South's greatest warrior, Nathan Bedford Forrest. Gene, always good to talk to you. How are you? James, great to talk to you. Hey, that wasn't the call you gave me last week. You said it was Transgender Month, and I got a new dress. What am I going to do with that? (laughs) Take off those high heels, I didn't know you had any expertise in transgender (laughs) issues. Believe me, he doesn't. Gene no, is a man's no, man. I, Gene the I, Marine. You got to get a CD or something to figure that one out. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> no, glad to be talking about uh, all of our Confederate history and, and our great Tennessean uh, General Forrest. Uh, we had mentioned earlier maybe about putting to rest a lot of the lies that come up, and they keep repeating them over and over and over again about Fort Pillow and the well, Gene, uh, so-called this, Fort Pillow Massacre. I want to say this. It is so refreshing to talk about a wholesome, genuine hero like Forrest after what we've had to report on during the first hour of this, you know, sexual depravity uh, on parade. Oh, gosh. Well, yeah, that, that's it's, why it's, they're, tearing down, they're tearing down all these monuments. They don't want people to know about real men and real heroes that led this country during our war for independence. And absolutely. so they, they can't lie enough to cover it all up, so they try to tear down all the monuments. You know, that's what they said in Rhodesia in South Africa when they destroyed the, the governments there, the first thing they did, they tore down the monuments. So the first thing they that's did what we're looking at here. Too. Yeah, it's, uh, they're following yes, the playbook of genocide, that's for sure. Come for the fabric, come for the monuments, and then they'll get your flesh and blood and your spirit. Now, Gene, we are going to talk about one of those great libels against the South, the, the so-called Fort Pillow Massacre. But before we yes, do sir. that, just give us a minute or two on as I put it, Forrest as a mythological figure in terms of his military prowess, do you consider him to be not just one of the greatest military minds in American history, but in the history of warfare itself? Absolutely, and his tactics are still studied in military schools today, although he never went to a military school. (laughs) 
He didn't go to West Point or the Citadel or VMI or Tennessee Military Institute, and yet he wrote the book, basically, that they studied well, today. Well, he, he did a lot of fighting uh, in bar rooms and, uh, and in the streets and everything <laughs> He was else. self-taught. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. But def- give us well, some of the examples the- of – go ahead. He, he grew up on the frontier, and from a very poor beginning, his father died when he was 16 years old. And at 16, he was the head of a household of a widowed mother and five younger children or siblings. So he had to take care of them and had to learn how to live where they were in northern Mississippi, literally on the frontier. There were panthers and bears out in the woods. And so it was a tough life growing up. And uh, he learned to to either get tough or die. That was basically it. Well, t- tell him what so, exactly about that situation in Hernando that was basically the first indication of his fighting medal. Well, he got in his uncle. He was in business with his uncle in Hernando, and his uncle had a feud with the Matlock brothers. And they were walking up the main street in in Hernando one Saturday afternoon, and, and the Matlock brothers were coming toward them with their o- overseer. And one of the brothers just pulled out a, a revolver and shot his uncle dead right there. And then uh, Bedford pulled out his pistol and shot him. And the other brother was reaching for his gun to shoot Bedford. And uh, uh, Bedford's gun jammed, and the crowd was just standing around watching, you know, a, a dull afternoon in Hernando, and there wasn't a football game on or anything to watch, I guess. <laughs> so, so somebody in the crowd threw him a bowie knife, and he went after that second brother with a bowie knife and uh, started slashing at him, and he took off running. And then the overseer took off running. He, I think he figured, these guys aren't paying me enough money to fight this wild, crazy teenager. So, you know, that that was the type of life he grew up with. So uh, almost go, going into a war was kind of an easy thing, really, in a way. After what you know, I've, I've spent most of my professional life practicing law in DeSoto County and in the Hernando Courthouse, so that particular story really resonates with and me. And then, of course, oh, you in were Memphis, right there where, then, yeah. In Memphis, where, where we live and where Forrest uh, spent most of his most of his life, uh, obviously there's that. And then, of course, Gene, you are the caretaker of his boyhood home, and I had the opportunity to come up there, thanks to you, Gene, of course, to come up there, and I brought my wife and my kids, and we had a chance to pay respect to Nathan Bedford Forrest and Mrs. Forrest as they laid in state in advance of his reinterment after the city of Memphis did their uh, business uh, down here with that. And I, I was about as far away from the casket that held the remains of Nathan Bedford Forrest as I am from Keith Alexander right now. And I'll and, never and forget I, that, uh, Gene. And let me say this before well, we get off the subject. If you're ever here in Memphis again, get in t- contact me, with me and I'll give you a really, uh, you know, rare tour of uh, Hernando and let you see where things happened and let you see the courthouse, which has wonderful murals of Hernando de Soto. All, through. all right. Great. Yes. I'll try to take you up on that. Love to see that. Thank yeah, you. We try, try to avoid Memphis, but if you have to be here, we can, we can make yeah. that happen anyway. All right, so back to Forrest. Now, we're going to get into Fort Pillow after the break. we got about two minutes left. Give us one Forrest story that sort of encapsulates. You know, this is the thing that always interested, interested me about Forrest, having been an officer. He knew what he didn't know. And so he got on his staff uh, a friend of his in Memphis that operated a hotel. So this he would go to his friend there and say, okay, we're going on a raid. It's going to last two weeks. We've got 3,000 men going on this raid. How much food do we need to take to cover them for two weeks? Uh, he also had a friend of his that ran a livery stable in Memphis. 
And he said, okay, we've got a raid going two weeks, 3,000 men. That means about 5,000 horses by the time you count the remounts and, and wagons and artillery and everything. How much grain do we need to carry with us to feed these horses for two weeks? So he knew where he could uh, delegate and not just try to make micromanage every single thing. Now, when it got on the battlefield, he was totally in charge of what was going on there. And he didn't sit back in the rear with the gear. He was up front. He could tell exactly when he needed to shift troops from one part of the line to the other or bring up reinforcements or tell the horse holders. You know, and when the cavalry goes in to a fight, every fourth man's a horse holder. And he takes the reins of his horse and three other horses and gets them out of the way. And sometimes the battle was so desperate, he just told the horse holders, tie them off to a tree and get on line up here. We need you right now. So you know, it, it, he was there in the middle of the fight. He could tell what was going on since the, uh, the, the emotions and the morale of his troops and be right there when he needed him at the critical spot. Had no formal military training, but went on to become the greatest tactician in the history of mobile warfare. Retired as a lieutenant general, his maneuvers, as Gene Andrews just mentioned, still studied today. He personally killed 30 enemy combatants, 30 to 1. We'll be back. Find your inner rebel at Dixie Republic, the world's largest Confederate store, located in Traveler's Rest, South Carolina. The anti-white, anti-Christ, anti-Southern world ends at the asphalt. Welcome to God's country. Log on to DixieRepublic.com to view our Southern merchandise, from flags to t-shirts to artwork. At the store, browse through our extensive collection of belt buckles and have a custom-made leather belt handcrafted in our Johnny Rebs gun and leather shop. That's DixieRepublic.com, where you can meet all of your Southern needs. While you're waiting, drop by our Confederate corner for a free cup of coffee and good conversation. Remember, there are no strangers here, just friends who haven't met yet. Dixie Republic, we're not just a roadside attraction, we're a destination for our people. For more information, visit DixieRepublic.com. Former Sheriff Richard Mack recounts in his book the proper role of law enforcement, how he came to realize while working as a beat cop how wrong the all-too-common orientation of police officers is when they think of their job as being to write tickets and arrest people. Richard Mack tells of his personal transformation from by-the-number cop to constitution-conscious defender of citizen safety and freedoms. Learn what it really means to serve and protect. Purchase your copy at CSPOA.org. That's CSPOA.org. Do you know what is great about America? Ask an Immigrant. Ask an Immigrant is a new podcast dedicated to helping Americans, especially our youth, value, appreciate, and be grateful for the freedoms we have here in America. Join host Lydia Wallace-Nuttle as she interviews immigrants from around the world to discover their inspiring personal stories about why they came to America. To learn more about why America is the most prosperous, greatest country in the world, download the Loving Liberty app or go to lovingliberty.net. On the day after the Battle of Shiloh, rebels were falling back real slow. No William to come to Sherman, the three brigades of men thought he might attack those rebels once again. You know he wants to fight. He's about to get one. <laughs> There's one man that stood in Sherman's way. 
Yankee, this just ain't your day. Well, Nathan bet the forest, 300 by side, said, boys, it's time to ride. Come ride, ride with the devil, for your sins, Yankee, will pay. Back with Gene Andrews, caretaker of the Nathan Bedford Forest Boyhood Home. I first met Gene probably about 15 years ago, if it was a day, and he was giving a speech at a Council of Conservative Citizens conference about the history of Fort Pillow. This was a presentation that was so impressive to me, it would have been right at home on the History Channel if they allowed history to be broadcast on that particular channel. And it's one of the great libels against the South and we are here to, with the historian himself, uh, to set the record straight. So Gene Keith and I are going to peel off here. We're going to let you have the floor to tell the truth about Fort Pillow. Take it away, Gene. All right, sir. Well, I hope all of our listeners are seated because I have some shocking information for them, for them right off the bat. Number one, the government will lie, and then they attack those who <laughs> tell the truth. The second shocker is that the prostitutes in the so-called mainstream media will also lie and repeat the government lies, and they will also attack those who tell the truth. And Nathan Bedford Forrest was a victim of America's first racial hoax. Now, we're used to racial hoaxes now with George Floyd, who died of a drug overdose in Minneapolis. It wasn't a policeman that killed him. And Bubba Wallace in NASCAR and the so-called nooses that were in the garage area, or Jesse Smollett in Chicago or the Duke lacrosse team, and on and on and on. So the the Fort Pillow massacre was Yankee war propaganda, a huge lie. And they needed something to stir up animosity and help recruiting in the North. Here's the situation in 1864 when uh, Fort Pillow was fought in the spring of 1864. Grant was going east to face Robert E. Lee, but there was no guarantee that he would do any better than just a footnote in history like Irwin McDowell or Ambrose P. Burnside or Fighting Joe Hooker. Out here in the West, Sherman was commanding the, the main federal army in the West, but he had a dismal record as an independent commander. You remember Forrest rode right over him at Fallen Timbers uh, the day after the battle at Shiloh. Uh, Sherman tried to take Vicksburg from the north and got hammered at, at the Chickasaw Bayou. Uh, he was marching on Selma, and Forrest destroyed his cavalry, and Sherman turned around and, and uh, ran back to Vicksburg. And then at Tunnel Hill on Missionary Ridge, Sherman ran into Patrick Claiborne and really got hammered. Now, in 1863, they had draft riots all across the North, not just in New York City. In uh, 63 and 64, these Confederate commerce raiders were sailing all over the seven seas. And by 1864, no country would ship a cargo on a U.S. ship because it was too dangerous. They couldn't get insurance. They knew the Alabama and the Florida and the Shenandoah and the Nashville were all out there hunting for anything with the U.S. flag. And in November of 1864, you had the presidential election coming up. So they had to stir up hatred for the North or hatred for the South by the North, boost recruiting efforts, but mainly, and the Lincoln government even admitted this, they wanted to incite black troops to show no quarter to Confederate troops or Southern civilians. And they were bragging about. This was their chance to finish off John Brown's slave uprising against the whites. And they wanted a massacre of whites on a larger scale than what happened in Haiti. So most of the blacks, though, didn't buy into that in the South. And I guess it's because blacks in the 1800s were a lot smarter than they are today. So there were a lot of lies concocted about the so-called Fort Pillow Massacre. Now, if you look at it, first of all, 
the dictionary definition of a massacre is a total annihilation, no survivors. Well, that's wrong right there. Here's the facts. And I know facts are hate speech. And we have to apologize to some of our listeners with gentle ears, but we're going to delve into facts tonight and hope it doesn't hurt their uh, uh, feelings too much. Here's the fact. There were 557 U.S. troops at Fort Pillow. 226 were killed, 201 were taken out as prisoners, and 130 were too severely wounded to be moved. And they were left there overnight for the United States Army medical staff. Now, these figures come from the United States Navy. This is not something the Confederates made up. And then the Confederates actually came back to Fort Pill on the next morning and helped load the wounded U.S. soldiers on steamboats to be sent down to Memphis. Another lie that they came up with was that the Confederates violated the truce. Uh, and that, that afternoon, after Forrest and his men had the fort surrounded, and just a brief description for our listeners that haven't been there, Fort Pillow's down on a bluff on the Mississippi River. And now today the Mississippi's changed course and it's moved out away from the Tennessee shore. And it's all woods and swamp down there. But back then it was right on the river. But uh, a ridge ran parallel to the fort, up above the fort, back to the east. So once you took that ridge, you were firing down into the fort, and that's exactly what happens. The Confederates surprised the defenders of Fort Pillow at dawn. They overran the outpost. They had that ridge, and now they were shooting basically down into the fort. So the battle was really over by about 8 o'clock that morning, but it went on until late that afternoon. Um, so Forrest about, got there about 10. He changed a lot of the positions of his men, made improvements. At 3, at 3 o'clock, he sent in a white flag and sent in an offer, offer of surrender to the fort. And while they were negotiating this, uh, a lot of the black troops that were there at the fort, it was uh, about half and half, half white, half black. Um, none of the troops had had any combat experience. The only officer that had any combat experience at the fort was a Major Booth, and he got shot. <laughs> the Confederate sniper put a round right between his running lights, and he was one of the first casualties. <laughs> and and the command went to a Major Bradford, who even the federal officer said was worthless. Uh, this character had some financial shenanigans going on up in the Midwest. I think it was Iowa, where he's originally from. And he ducked out of town and joined the Army to get away from, from uh, all the financial, financial deals he was pulling. And they made him an officer, so that's not really somebody you want as a, as a commanding officer. So uh, he wasn't much help. So anyway, Farr sent in an, an offer, offer for uh, surrender, and uh, a lot of the black troops had been given whiskey. Uh, to boost their courage, and Confederates found barrels of whiskey along the wall of the fort after they got in there. They were standing up on the wall and shouting all sorts of insults to the Confederates uh, during this truce, which was not really a good idea. Now, we want to go back, first of all, and tell why Forrest even went to Fort Pillow. That was not on his agenda. Uh, they were The Confederates were in a raid into West Tennessee and Western Kentucky for horses. He was given, when he was transferred west, Away from Bragg's army, he was given two cavalry divisions, James Chalmers and Abraham Buford. And Buford's men were dismounted. So basically they were infantry. So they were going up through West Tennessee and into western Kentucky, like we said, to get horses. They left Columbus, Mississippi on March the 1st, went through Tennessee, captured a garrison at Union City. There was no Union City massacre because they surrendered. 
They went all the way up to Paducah, Kentucky, then back through Mayfield, back down to Trenton, Tennessee. And then he sent a preliminary report to his commanding officer, Stephen D. Lee, down in Mississippi, and never mentioned Fort Pillow. So he went from March the 1st till April the 4th, and Fort Pillow was never mentioned at all. And then on April the 6th, he sent a supplementary order and said, we will attend to Fort Pillow. So what happened? (laughs) In those two days, the civilians in West Tennessee begged him to do something about Fort Pillow. These troops that were there, a lot of them were what Forrest called Tennessee Tories, Tennessee Unionists. A lot of them were deserters from the Confederate Army that had uh, picked up a rifle and Union and uh, Union Army uniform, and they were robbing the civilians in, in West Tennessee. They were attacking the women, and that was a no-no with Forrest. You did not go after women. You know, combat on the battlefield was one thing, but when you attack civilians and especially women, that that is uncalled for. So he said, I will attend to Fort Pillow, and they headed over that way the next week and got there at dawn on April the 12th. And then we pick up our story again where we, where you said, where we said that he offered them a chance to surrender, and it was refused. Now, here's one of the lies that they, they said that the Confederates violated the truce. Well, the Confederates were already in position along the riverbank before the truce, before the surrender offer. They went down to the landing and warned a U.S. steamboat bringing reinforcements not to land, that there was a truce on. The second lie was that the Confederates burned U.S. troops that were wounded. Well, and the fact is these cabins down below the fort were set on fire by the order of the U.S. the Yankee commander so they could deny cover to the Confederates. So if they got burned, they were burned by their own people setting the buildings on fire, and we'll pick that up right after the break and continue with the lies about Fort Pillow. The one and only Gene Andrews, breaking it down as only he can, folks. Uh, This is true history presented in a way that would be right at home on network television. Stay tuned. Pursuing Liberty, using the Constitution as our guide. You're listening to Liberty News Radio. USA News. I'm Jerry Barmash. The Republican field of presidential hopefuls could get more crowded in the coming weeks. As more and more people look to challenge frontrunner former President Trump, more candidates are officially entering the race. Former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson will launch his campaign this week. Former VP Mike Pence says he will finalize his plans in weeks, not months. Come June, Senator Tim Scott is expected to officially join the race, and former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie held a town hall meeting in New Hampshire, saying tonight is the beginning of the case against Donald Trump. His decision to run will come in the next few weeks. I'm John Schaefer. On the Democratic side of the ledger, President Biden is expected to announce his bid for re-election as soon as next week. White House aides suggest it could happen as early as Tuesday on the four-year anniversary of his 2020 announcement. Biden is already the oldest-serving president in U.S. history and would be 82 just days after the election. A messy Earth Day in Southern California thanks to a sewage spill. Some popular beaches in the Los Angeles area remain off-limits as the cleanup is underway. A quarter of a million gallons of sewage got into the Los Angeles River and backed up into the Pacific. This Long Beach resident is bummed out by the environmental issue. We'd love to go in the water. This is a huge touristic attraction. you got people from all over the world coming out to Long Beach. Health officials are monitoring the water quality. 
Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is seeking federal aid for flood victims in Fort Lauderdale. DeSantis today said he plans to ask the Biden administration to declare Broward County a disaster area. The declaration would make residents eligible for loans and federal assistance for damaged property. More than two feet of rain fell in some areas in the county earlier this month, and around a 1,000 homes were severely damaged. This is USA News. I've got a unique vacation idea for you that's right here in the United States. If you're ready for a vacation that's fun and downright affordable, listen up. It's driving distance for many of you, so no planes, no airline delays, no hassles. It's Branson, Missouri, the entertainment capital of the Midwest. Live music for everyone. Branson has three beautiful, enormous lakes, water attractions, live shows, great food, and tons of entertainment. It's a perfect vacation for you and your family, or if you're retired and you want to have a great time. And you can stay in Branson for as low as $99 a night. Please understand, this is not a timeshare offer. It's a real vacation for as little as $99 a night. We've got a free vacation guide we want to send you right now. All you have to do is call for complete details. Get your free Branson, Missouri guide right now by calling this number. 800-399-4215. 800-399-4215. That's 800-399-4215. Now Forrest, he shouted from over here. Said, boys, give him hot lead and cold steel. Then he gave his rebel yell. Then he led the charge. That's when old Sherman, he swallowed on. But I real close. I think he broke out in a cold sweat. Said, man, from that devil down. After me, just to stand your ground. What fear took control? The Yankees did run. The devil's work on this day is done. Yeah, come ride, ride with the devil. For your sins, Yankee. We don't want to confuse you, ladies and gentlemen. That song, Ride with the Devil, which uh, was performed by Rick Revel, who has also been a guest on uh, Confederate History Month uh, on TPC in years past. Uh, he's talking about the Battle of Shiloh in that particular song, the history of the retreat at Shiloh. Well, actually, the Battle of Fallen Timbers. Correct, correct, right after Shiloh. Not Fort Pillow, which is what Gene Andrews is here to talk about right now. And I've heard uh, Gene give uh, this speech at conferences, on the radio, this presentation, rather, and at Fort Pillow itself. You know, Keith, we chartered a bus for TPC donors oh, a couple I years ago. I walking around out there with Michael Hill. And we had the opportunity to hear Gene give this speech, or this presentation, rather, at Fort Pillow itself. Just, and I'll never forget that. I'll never forget being at the boyhood home, being able to pay respects to Forrest, and uh, Gene's presentation of this at the battle site itself. At the Tennessee River Museum in Savannah, uh, they've got an exhibit on Forrest, and I'm going to read just two quick things there from the exhibit. And this is what you'll find there. Confederate States General Nathan Bedford Forrest was the most respected and feared cavalry commander of the war. The Wizard of the Saddle was wounded four times and famous for having 30 horses shot out from under him. He was a master of the lightning raid and an expert at winning against long odds. At the exhibit, you can also read this fact, that General Sherman uh, recognized that Forrest was a major threat to his supply lines 
uh, Sherman had said Forrest must be hunted down and killed if it costs 10,000 lives and bankrupts the federal treasury. Sherman repeatedly committed key federal troops from West Tennessee into northern Mississippi to pursue Forrest. Outmaneuvering and outwitting every adversary, Forrest thwarted all of Sherman's attempts. After the war, Sherman would describe his former foe as, quote, the most remarkable man our Civil War produced on either side, unquote. And back to Fort Pillow we go with Gene Andrews. Well, that was true about Forrest. And you see what happened was that the the federal soldiers, the U.S. soldiers, had more respect for Forrest and his ability than the Confederate government did. Uh, that spring and summer of 1864, just like you said, James, there were four separate armies sent out from Memphis into northern Mississippi to keep Forrest busy. Because what Sherman was afraid of, when he was getting ready to start his campaign from Chattanooga down to take Atlanta, he was afraid that Forrest would get out of Mississippi and break the two railroads in Tennessee that were supplying him. One was the Nashville and Decatur that ran south, due south out of Nashville, down to Decatur, Alabama, and then across to Chattanooga. And the other one, railroad ran southeast out of Nashville to Chattanooga, the Nashville and Chattanooga Railroad. And those were the only supply lines that Sherman could use in the summertime. They could not use the Tennessee River to supply an army of over 100,000 plus horses and, and all the other equipment they needed to, to carry out a military campaign. Couldn't use the Tennessee River because of Muscle Shoals, Alabama. And in the summertime, the water was too low there to get over the shoals that Wheeler Dam hadn't been built yet. And so these steamboats that would carry supplies to an army couldn't come by the Tennessee River, come up river there. So he had to depend on these two railroads. And if Forrest took out the Nashville Indicator and the Nashville and Chattanooga, Sherman was stuck in North Georgia with no supplies, no reinforcements, no ways to get his wounded back out of there to federal hospitals in Nashville or Louisville. And so we would not hear any about Sherman's march to the sea or anything else like that. But uh, Gene, let me ask the, you this. I, I yes, have heard sir. that General Forrest asked Braxton Bragg or whoever was commanding at that time, I don't know if it was John Bell Hood or what, to harass Sherman on the march to the sea, and it was turned down. And I just wonder what a different history we would have about Sherman's march to the sea if had Forrest gone after him, yeah, right. we, we it would have been a short march. <laughs> I'll guarantee you that. <laughs> but at, at that time, Forrest was attached to John Bell Hood for his campaign into Tennessee to try to recapture Nashville. And they thought that uh, Wheeler, Joseph Wheeler, was the cavalry in Georgia and South Carolina and finally North Carolina that was trying to oppose Sherman. And they felt like that was the best they could do there and keep Forrest with Hood's army. and Because, really, if you look at the map, uh, Forrest, by the time Sherman was getting ready to start his turn from Savannah all the way up through the Carolinas, Forrest was all the way over in West Tennessee at Johnsonville. He, In fact, he was on the west side of the Tennessee River firing his artillery across the river at Johnsonville on the east side. And then he got word that he was ordered to join John Bell Hood and the Army of Tennessee when they were getting ready to cross the Tennessee River at Florence, Alabama, and get into Middle Tennessee and try to recapture Nashville. So oh. now he had to come down the west side of the Tennessee River across that little corner of Mississippi and then across northern Alabama and cross at, at Florence and catch up to 
the Army of Tennessee and spread out in front of the Army of Tennessee because they had no cavalry coverage, and they needed Forrest there. And he beat the living daylights out of Wilson's Federal Cavalry all the way from down south, about at the Tennessee-Alabama state line, all the way up to Franklin. So I guess that's, yeah, in theory, you're right. That would have probably worked better to turn Forrest loose on Sherman, but he would have an awfully long way to go from western Tennessee um, down across northern Alabama, across Georgia, and then try to get into uh, the Carolinas to oppose Sherman. So uh, well, back, I think you're right. It's it's yeah. so hard to determine and to focus on one element of uh, a man like Forrest's history in the war alone, and not even to mention his entire biography, as we were talking about a little bit last week with uh, John Hill, the descendant of A.P. Hill. But uh, we got about two or three minutes before the break. we got one more segment with you after that. Let's get back to Fort Pillow. I think Fort Pillow was, okay, the Fort Pillow. was a decisive we're... Confederate victory, which we love, but it's used as a great libel against well, the well, South. Well, the one other thing about yeah, it we got to go back it, to Fort you know, Pillow. Yeah, yeah, the thing about Lincoln, he was not a good mayor, mayor, uh, military strategist, but he certainly was a political strategist. And he needed something to stir people up to vote exactly. for him in 1864. All right, that's right. And you talk about there that in your presentation. Go. So they, you? they just concocted one lie after the other, and we were talking about those who violated the troops. No, burned wounded U.S. troops. No, they set the cabins on fire. It wasn't forest men that did that. Then they say, well, the Confederates shot poor unarmed civilians that were there at the fort as settlers. And they had quite a few women there that were serving as, shall we say, professional women for the U.S. soldiers. And uh, no, because the Major Bradford, the Yankee Army commander, had armed the civilians. And they told he told them to fight the Confederates. And then the last lie they came up with was that the Confederates buried U.S. wounded alive. No, the fact is, and this is a, a policy in the Confederate Army and the U.S. Army, that your prisoners had to bury their own dead so that they couldn't be any buried alive accusations. And that's what exactly what the Confederates did. They used the federal prisoners that they had, prisoners of war that they had after the battle, to bury their own dead. And then that way you couldn't say what they had buried them alive. Now, the ca casualties were very disproportionate, uh, especially among the blacks. The fact is the Confederates had 14 killed and 86 wounded. And the reason is that, well, the Confederates were veterans of four years of war. They were fighting inexperienced troops with no combat experience. Many of them were drunk. And like we said, the Confederates found barrels of whiskey along the fort wall. And the blacks were told before they left Memphis by General Hulbert, who was the Yankee commander in Memphis, not to surrender. He told them the Confederates would give no quarters to blacks. So do not surrender to the Confederates. So the blacks were told ahead of time not to surrender and keep fighting the Confederates. Now, as we mentioned, they'd given them a tr truce, Forrest sent in a flag of truce about 3 o'clock. Uh, General Bradford asked for an hour. He said, you've got, Forrest told him he got 20 minutes because he knew that he was stalling, trying to get reinforcements to come up river from Memphis. He said, you've got 20 minutes. Uh, Bradford re refused the offer to surrender at 3.30, the bugle sounded, and about 1,200 Confederates came rushing down off of that ridge. There's a moat around the fort. A fort pillar was an earthen wall fort, not like a fort you see in the cowboy and Indian movies, big uh, high wall, wooden walls like a stockade. Had an earthen wall about six feet high, and four or excuse me, five openings in it for artillery, 
the Confederates had already silenced the artillery with their sharpshooters. Uh, when they rolled a cannon into one of those openings, the Confederate sharpshooters and snipers were picking off the gunners. So they pretty much neutralized the artillery they had there. So the Confederates came rushing down this hill, jumped into this moat right below the fort. Now you had the Confederates and the Federal soldiers about eight feet apart and a wall, earth wall in between them. On the second blast of the bugle, the Confederates came up and over the wall, but they didn't jump up on top of the wall and stand up there. They jumped, they scrambled up this dirt bank and flopped down on the wall so that it was a harder target to hit. And we'll tell you what happened at the last of that right after the break. The Honorable Cause of Free South is a collection of 12 essays written by Southern Nationalist authors. The book explores topics such as what is the Southern nation, what is Southern nationalism, and how can we achieve a free and independent Dixie. The Honorable Cause answers questions on our own terms. The book invites readers to understand for themselves why a free and independent Dixie is both preferable and possible. The book pulls in some of the biggest producers of pro-South content, including James Edwards, the host and creator of The Political Cesspool, and Wilson Smith, author of Charlottesville Untold, Arkansas congressional candidate and activist Neil Kumar, host and creator of the Dissident Mama podcast, Rebecca Dillingham, author of A Walk in the Park, My Charlottesville Story, Identity Dixie's Patrick Martin, and yours truly, Michael Hill, founder and president of the League of the South, as well as several other authors. The Honorable Cause is available now at Amazon.com. True Passover versus Easter. The Catholic Church and most denominations follow the Jewish Passover. Here is the Jewish tradition. The Passover takes place 14 days after the new moon, after the equinox. But what does God say? In Isaiah 1 verse 14, quote, Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals I hate with all my being. Unquote. Now notice God's word versus Jewish tradition. Quote, in the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. Unquote. That's from Leviticus 23, verse 5. God's year begins on the spring equinox. Passover is always on the fourteenth day of God's year, the fourteenth day after the equinox. The Sunday after the Passover is Resurrection Sunday. None of this is about fertility, which is exactly what Easter is all about. Easter bunny and eggs, fertility rites, are paganism. Nathan Bedford Forrest, you know, the thing about Forrest that makes his exploits all the more remarkable is that he was one of the wealthiest men in the South when the war broke out. He is still enlisted as a soldier of the lowest rank in order to further serve his country. He was a major planner. He didn't have to serve at all. He was legally exempted from service, but he chose to serve anyway, and the rest is our history. As a matter of fact, on that beautiful equestrian monument uh, to Nathan Bedford Forrest, the inscription so beautifully reads, those hoof beats die not upon fame's crimson sod, but will ring through her song and her story. He fought like a titan and struck like a god, and his dust is our ashes of glory. And I'll tell you one more thing about when Forrest died. This was the account from his funeral. Listen to this, ladies and gentlemen, and listen closely. We're going to toss it back to Gene. 
for one more segment on the history of the Battle of Fort Pillow. Main Street was cleared. This is in downtown Memphis. Main Street was cleared. The sidewalks, the doors, windows, and roofs were crowded, but I managed to find a seat on the curb. The crowd went wild with joy and frenzy when Forrest's cavalry came into view. Flanked on each side by handsome horsemen was the riderless horse of the late general. Then came his little grandson, who was seated gracefully on a spirited pony. Following the horse and the grandson came the faithful slave and personal servant of General Forrest. He was on foot and carried a live chicken in one hand and a skillet in the other. The people roared, and the rebel yells were louder than ever. It soon became evident that the former slave could not continue his march. A marshal blew his whistle, and the parade came to a standstill. The feeble colored man was put into a luxurious carriage. The old raiders sat gracefully on their steeds. Even those with white beards looked like knights of old and radiated an air of mystery and glamour. Ladies and gentlemen, if you appreciate the work that we do here and the guests that we present to you and the history that we give you, thanks to people like Gene Andrews, please support this show. There is no other show like it. Keith, quick word to you. And then to Gene. And, you know, I think there are a lot of people, particularly Yankees, <clears throat> that wonder why they haven't heard more about Nathan Bedford Forrest. Well, it's obvious after hearing that, uh, that James just said, and also Gene's presentation. He would give too much fame and acclaim and glory to the South if his story were widely known. Gene, what is the inscription at the boyhood home on the gate outside about him leaving this property and riding into history? Yeah, he, well, that quotation came from a painting by Jack Knox, who used to be the editorial cartoonist on the Nashville Banner when we had a conservative paper in Nashville. And he did a whole series of paintings of historic sites on Middle Tennessee, and he did one of the forest home. And across the top of the painting, and, the, and we copied, we got permission from the Knox family to use that, it's on the entrance gate to the Forest Boyhood home. It says, he rode from here into the legend of the land. And that's so beautiful. that's, I think, pretty well sums it up right there. It sure does. I will attend to Fort Pillow, he said. Gene, tell us the rest of the story. All right. We kind of left our listeners uh, anticipating what happened. The Confederates had just gone over the wall at the fort. They didn't stand up and start shooting away. They flopped down on that earthen wall. And the first thing the, the Union soldiers saw when they, the Confederate boys came over, they saw the business end of double-barrel shotguns and rifles right in their face. There was a huge volley from that. They dropped those weapons. Uh, Forest men carried at least four pistols with them, four revolvers. They pulled out the revolvers, one in each hand, and started blasting away. Now, this is close. You know, you're shooting people that are three or four feet away from you. This was the original shock and awe right there. The federal soldiers broke. They ran across the parade ground of the fort to about you know, 40 yards away was a bluff that dropped down to the, the, the uh, river road down along the, the Mississippi River, and they were funneled through these rows of tents. And so the Confederates were shooting from 20 and 30 yards away to this mass of blue, and they couldn't miss. And most of the casualties at Fort Pillow came from these uh, bodies that were piled up. They said two or three deep between these rows of tents. And to, so, to say that they waited until it was all over, then massacred the troops, a lot of nonsense. And, and, you know, I always ask these people in these debates, have you ever been under fire in combat? And 99.9% .9 of them say, no, they haven't. They just, you know, I heard this, or I heard that. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah, well, 
you know, that's you're not you're not an expert on a combat situation. Well, Forrest almost got hit at Fort Pillow, didn't he, Gene? Didn't his, what yes, he horse did. He had two horses killed. He was riding <laughs> around that ridge up on uh, up on that ridge and checking the positions of where his were. You and I stood. Where the Yankees were. We yep. stood. You and I and Keith. We all stood there with the group that day. And if you're getting, yes, if you're, if bullets are getting near enough to you to kill your horse, they're getting pretty close. Oh, pretty close enough. It's pretty some random shots, but they were good enough to hit two of the horses. And his staff said, "Well, sir, you, you need to dismount. You're too good of a target." And he said, "Well, I could get f- killed on foot, but I can see better up on a horse's back on horseback." Because he was and a big going, guy. He was bigger than most men of the time. Oh yeah, he was about six two, weighed about two hundred pounds, very muscular. Uh, you know, he looked looked like a linebacker, National Football League type. So um, tough individual. So anyway, the, the federal soldiers broke, ran for that bluff. They, there was only one small path down to the river road. They jumping down that bluff, falling, breaking legs and arms. And then Forrest, about 15 to 20 minutes after the initial assault went over the wall, he got down to the river road and rode up into the fort, and he ordered the flag cut down. The U.S. flag was still flying, and as long as the flag was flying, that meant the fort hadn't surrendered. So he ordered the flag cut down, and even the most anti-South, anti-Forest historians will say they agree with the uh, the account of Fort Pillow up to that point. Now, the mayhem and what was going on down on that river road, you had Confederates firing from north to south that had come over the wall. The other Confederates had come from south to the north. They were firing up and down that river road. And plus you had the ones that had come over the wall. They were up on the bluff firing straight down on the Federal soldiers down there. So they were not only caught in a crossfire, they were caught in kind of a triple fire down there. And the problem they ran into, a lot of the blacks and whites would surrender. They'd throw the, the Confederates would take their weapons, throw them out of the way, and then go after another group that hadn't surrendered and were still fighting. The ones that had been surrendered were back behind the Confederates. They'd pick up weapons and started shooting at them in the back. So, yeah, they turned around and said, well, heck with this. They just shot them right there. So that's where a lot of this story about the massacre took place. So eventually it all died down. They got the prisoners out of there, the wounded that they could take with them. Like I said, they left about 130 that were too seriously wounded, and the Confederates were gone out of there by sundown. And to say that the Confederates had robbed the wounded soldiers at night is another lie because there weren't any Confederates in the fort at night. There were some under Captain Anderson that came back the next morning and helped load the wounded Federal soldiers on a steamboat, the Silver Cloud, if they want to check it. And they were sent down to the hospitals in Memphis. And then Forrest headed on back down to northern Mississippi. He had all he caught up. That was James Chalmers' division that did that. Uh, Abraham Buford was still coming down out of Kentucky, and so he met up with Buford's division, and Chalmers went with him, and they went on back down to northern Mississippi. And then that's when all the propaganda broke loose about the Fort Pillow Massacre. And the congressional investigation, they printed 40,000 copies of the Fort Pillow Massacre to send to newspapers all over the north. That was the largest printing of any congressional hearing or committee up to that time was 40,000 copies of the Fort Pillow Massacre and sent out to all the newspapers across the north to get this uh, this anti-South hatred built up and whip up this fire against the South. So For the election, Pillow, uh, let, let me ask you this, if I could, Gene. Yes, sir. Tell us about, I understand there was some federal gunboat and 
black troops sliding down the hill trying to get to the river? Yep. Well, they had a plan. They had a plan. There was a gunboat, the New Era, out in the Mississippi River. And they were saying if the fort fell, they were going to slide down this bluff, and the gunboat was going to fire a canister over their heads and across the parade ground of the fort and catch the Confederates out in the open. Well, Forrest knew how to take care of gunboats. That wasn't a problem with him. That uh, even before the assault came, he had men posted, sharpshooters posted up and down the riverbank, and when that gunboat would open the the ports or the the you know the to slide the the artillery out and fire, as soon as they opened those gun ports, the Confederates would pour a huge volume of rifle fire right in those open gun ports, and they had bullets hitting the the gunners. They had bullets ricocheting off the barrels. They tried that two or three times, and finally they closed up the gun ports and just steamed off upriver. They were never a factor in the battle. So without well, uh, artillery, Forrest uh, was able to drive a gunboat out of the battle. Well, were there uh, Union <laughs> troops, and particularly black Union troops, that drowned? And, yeah. You know, sliding they, down? They were in uh, such a panic, they just jumped into the river and drowned there. So it was – that – off of that bluff and down on that river road, there was a wharf down there, steamboat landing, and uh, these settlers uh, that had the civilian stores that were selling, you know, supplies like whiskey and and tobacco and you know things that the soldiers wanted at, at these uh, settler stores, and uh, down there on that road that was down right on the water's edge, and that's where all the confusion and and you know. Uh, scrambling around and everything went on down there and, and i i would never deny that some soldiers were yankee soldiers were shot after they surrendered if they had been attacking my family in west tennessee and they had murdered somebody in my family or attacked my mother or sister uh somebody like that i don't think i would would hesitate to Wouldn't take one or two of them out uh, shooting them well because the local the local population the local citizens were claiming this they were claiming there was robbery oh, as far as whole reason for being there because of yeah, the complaints that's why he went them. this was you know like uh, about 50 miles out of his way if you draw a, a north south line the the route they were taking back to mississippi there was no need for him to go to fort pillow i mean you know everybody knows that for that calvary can't capture a fort oh no can't do that and even if they captured it they couldn't hold it because because the federal navy would come along and just blast them right out of there so really he had no need for fort pillow at all um but it was the civilians that asked him to do something about it about the war criminals that they had so the in order of course they don't tell you that you know, they don't tell you why he went to Fort Pillow. All they tell you on CNN or, you know, the History Channel or something is that, that he went there just so he could murder black troops, which is, you know, a horrendous lie. But well, that's what we get from the government. Thankfully, you don't get it here and you don't get it from um, former history teacher, former combat Marine, current caretaker of the Forest Boyhood home, Gene Andrews. You don't get it here. You don't get it from Gene. And thank you, as our friends at the Barnes Review put it, Gene, for putting history into accord with the facts here about uh, the South's greatest warrior and his participation at Fort Pillow. We love you, Gene. Can't wait to see you again. Have had oh, some great memories. Please come back okay. here. Let me give you the show. Yeah, and also let me show you around Hernando. <laughs> great. Hey, we, I won't take you, you, you up on that. He invited us to go to the boyhood home of Forrest. You invite him to go to Memphis. I mean, we're trading. He's trading down. We'll be back for the third hour. <laughs> 
Are you a native son or daughter of the South who pleads the stars and bars? Someone not born in Dixieland, but who is a Johnny Reb at heart and looking for a place to shop that promotes Southern heritage? Well, your search is over. Dixie Republic is the place to go for all things celebrating the Confederacy and promoting Southern pride. Inside the log cabin, just outside Traveler's Rest, South Carolina, Dixie Republic has t-shirts, hats, videos, flags, books, belt buckles, and some of the best mouth-watering barbecue sauce that will ever touch your lips. There's just about everything you want honoring the South at Dixie Republic. Well, you say that South Carolina's a bit too far for you to drive? Have no fear, my friend. All of this is just a mouse click away. Go online at www.dixierepublic.com. Your home for all things celebrating the Confederacy and promoting Southern pride. Is there a count somewhere? You're listening to Resolution Radio. Radio. ResolutionRDO.com. You're listening to the Political Cesspool on ResolutionRDO.com. Call and listen now at 607-203-5423. That's 607-203-5423. You've made a serious investment in protecting yourself and your family. You've purchased the gun, the ammunition, the training, and even secured a license to carry in your state. You know the Constitution and don't believe you should have to pay for a right that you already have, as written in the Second Amendment, but you are law-abiding. Now you are considering the legal defense options you should have if you ever have to use a firearm. Self-Defense Fund is a comprehensive litigation membership backing you on appeals, legal expenses, court costs, and more, up to $1 million per incident and unlimited attorney costs per member. Discover SelfDefenseFund.com for yourself. Any weapon, any state, any time. You're listening to the Liberty News Radio Network, and this is the Political Cesspool. The Political Cesspool, known across the South and worldwide as the South's foremost populist conservative radio program. And here to guide you through the murky waters of the Political Cesspool is your host, James Edwards. Confederate History Month uh, coverage continues here on TPC. James Edwards, Keith Alexander, third hour here now. What a great uh, and well-executed two hours so far, if I do say so myself. Thanks to Gene Andrews, 
our guest in the last hour. And now we're joined by Neil Kumar, a former candidate for Congress who is now in the final year at the University of Arkansas School of Law. It's always great to talk to Neil. And in he terms would, of courage, he's our modern-day General Forrest. Yeah, we might get into that in a moment. We were learning a few things during the commercial break, uh, but he's back with us primarily tonight to discuss his chapter in the brand-new book, The Honorable Cause of Free South. He uh, was not with us uh, there in South Carolina a couple of weeks ago when some of the other authors were for that book launch, so we're happy to have him now and that he had time in his schedule to join us tonight. Neil, great to have you back on the show. Yeah, it's always great to be here. Well, let's start right there, my friend. You contributed uh, a chapter in the book. Uh, why don't you tell us that uh, <laughs> the, the message you were uh, conveying in the pages you wrote? Yeah, so it's it's a uh, it's a uh, basically like a white paper introducing the differences and and the similarities between Southern nationalism and white nationalism, and that's an important topic because all too often the two terms are conflated. So you have a lot of, you know, racially conscious young Southern boys who will still call themselves white nationalists by default, uh, even though they're really Southern nationalists. And so you have all this money and energy in the white nationalist uh, space that really should be in the Southern nationalist space. And while there are some similarities, we do at the end of the day have different missions. You talk about your very your own very interesting background, and I think, listen, I mean, I, of course, appreciated all of the chapters and all of the writers, but yours is certainly right there at the very top. Uh, it was, in, in many ways, the most powerful chapter. I think yours along with Dr. Hill in terms of just really throwing down the gauntlet. Patrick's was great. I mean, I didn't see any weak spots. I'm just saying I really especially appreciated your chapter uh, because this is a very important topic. So continue on with your findings and your opinions on, uh, well, you, you, you lay it out in the title of the chapter itself, Cousins, you ask with a question mark, distinctions between Southern nationalism and white nationalism. Continue on, Neil. Yeah, well, we, as Southern nationalists, we have to start from the, from the premise that the United States of America is dead. It's a, it's a rotten, bloated, festering corpse, you know, toxic chemical spills and child trannies and you know, rampant black crime, just a real nightmare. The USA today is the most evil civilization that has ever existed on the face of the earth. And here, here. we have no love for this, uh, what you, what used to be called our country. We are Southerners. We care about the South. Or I don't care what happens to New York or California. I, I, I care about the Confederate States. And you know, we are we are white, but it's more than that. We're Christian and we're Southern. It's not an abstract identity. It's it's tied to a particular people, a particular culture, a particular place. We don't want to save the USA. We don't want some kind of a pan-European supranational organization like the EU. We just want Dixieland, and that's it. The smaller, the better, basically. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a lot more feasible. Uh, our project is a lot more feasible. And also, you know, a, a lot of white nationalist discourse is tinged by, you know, hateful rhetoric. And we do hate our enemies, but the Southern project is motivated by love 
for our own more than anything but, else. That's absolutely right. And I don't know if you've been able to see uh, the reviews. We've been talking about them, been sharing them. I know you, uh, along with the other authors, are part of a group chat, and some of this stuff gets transmitted back and forth. It's tough to keep up with all the messages and emails, I know. But um, the we were talking about this earlier. It seems as though the very reviews of this book have elicited a sense of passion among the very people who just read it, I, because that's certainly something that they're drawing from what they have read. And, and Europeans in particular, you know, European nationalists are reading this and drawing inspiration from it. Well, that's right. Yeah, it's, that's right, because we've been reviewed by Tom Sunik in Croatia. Now, he did that for Kevin McDonald's publication, but Remy Tremblay for a French language journal and Sasha Rossmuller for a German magazine. What do you think it is about this book that is bringing out that passion for nationalism from people far away from Dixie Shores, Neil? Well, I think it's the time period that we're in. We're seeing, we're seeing a, a shift away. You know, people people call the USA Uncle Sam, but I think Uncle Schmuel is more accurate. But anyway, <laughs> Uncle Schmuel and his minions, this unipolar world where the USA controls everything, we're moving away from that. We're moving into a multipolar world where power is shared between groups of unique peoples. And so traditionalist nationalists are all over the world in all colors and all continents, right? And they have a passion for their people, for their land. So there's a move away from, from these, you know, Leviathan behemoth evil totalitarian states towards more devolved localism. And so I think that is what, you know, that's, that's what's happening with protests all over Europe. That's what's happening in Russia. That's what's happening in Asia, Africa, all over the world. So we're tapping See, in into Ukraine, that. for example, um, you know, <clears throat> America has peaked out. It seems like we have, you know, the, the Jewish globalists that are behind that war have overplayed their hand, and now it seems like the whip hand is in the Chinese and in the Russians, and I think that's probably going to turn out to be a good thing for Americans, and particularly Southerners. Because now Absolutely. we can tend to the our own The best thing that could happen for us is for the USA to lose some kind of a war with Russia and China. You know, for 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 the do when the dollar ends as the global reserve currency, which is going to happen, it's it's going to be painful in the short term. But the U.S. government will will no longer have the resources to oppress us to do what it has been doing to us for the last two hundred years, almost two hundred years. Amen. Hey, and, Neil, you are right on so target, this, brother. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm optimistic. We're living in a, a good Keep moment. Keep on preaching, a brother. Moment, but <laughs> a good moment. We're going to go let him uh, cool down for a moment. We've got him for one more segment. I mean, and I'm going to read something that he wrote in the book, but also something that he wrote as a response during his campaign for Congress. Powerful stuff from Neil Kumar coming up right after this. You're really going to want to hear it. Find your inner rebel at Dixie Republic, the world's largest Confederate store, located in Traveler's Rest, South Carolina. The anti-white, anti-Christ, anti-Southern world ends at the asphalt. Welcome to God's country. Log on to DixieRepublic.com to view our Southern merchandise, from flags to t-shirts to artwork. 
At the store, browse through our extensive collection of belt buckles and have a custom-made leather belt handcrafted in our Johnny Rebs gun and leather shop. That's DixieRepublic.com, where you can meet all of your southern needs. While you're waiting, drop by our Confederate corner for a free cup of coffee and good conversation. Remember, there are no strangers here, just friends who haven't met yet. Dixie Republic, we're not just a roadside attraction, we're a destination for our people. For more information, visit DixieRepublic.com. In Message 1, we said that Satan, the father of lies, John 8.44, gave the left evil, spiritual power, the more they use the lies. The political left today is the beast. Now, the Bible confirms that the dragon gave him, the beast, his power. Revelation 13.2 The extra evil spiritual power that comes from the beast by their lying is what accounts for the string of the leftist criminals in the government that have never yet been prosecuted. It also explains why American capitalists support communism in the 21st century. Note 1. That behavior of capitalists was predicted by Vladimir Lenin, a cell of the beast. Note 2. Henry Ford was a capitalist, and he would have never gone communist. The difference between Ford and the present day end-time capitalists is that Ford was born and educated in the Kingdom of Christ, 19th century America, the New Jerusalem, Revelation 21. God's blessing be with the wisdom in the prayer of every patriot's heart. And to them may victory always be given and near from their banished depart. I hear their war cry sounding, sounding deep over mountain and glen. Their bright gleaming bennets have kept the hill. Tis a march of the southern men. Tis the march, tis the march, tis the march of the southern men. March of the Southern Men still exists and still is carried on, and it is being carried on tonight. Now, I want to read an excerpt from the chapter that Neil contributed to this book, Neil Kumar, our guest right now. But first, just to remind you of the kind of man that we're talking to in Neil Kumar, still in law school, still about, you know, certainly much younger than Keith <laughs> and, and much younger than me as well. But he sets an example that uh, that people his age should be following, and he's got the medal he, he, that passing. men twice and three times his age don't have. Yeah, well, that's see, right. he's passing through the fires now. And see, where I'm on the other side, I've had a career, I'm uh, still licensed and whatnot, He's up here bearding the lion at this particular time when he's most vulnerable, trying to get licensed to be a lawyer. And not and, and he's not backing up a bit. Not backing up a bit. When he ran for Congress, you'll have to remember that a couple of years ago when he ran, uh, the you had the situation involving the shooter in Buffalo. According to the media, uh, <laughs> with a grain of salt, we'll take it. He was motivated by the what they call the Great Replacement Theory. Of course, it's the Great Replacement Fact. And the Southern Poverty Law Center emailed Neil Kumar, and this is what they wrote. Your platform lists ending the Great Replacement Theory as, as its first plank. This was when he was running for uh, Congress. SPLC asking Neil, do you have a comment on these issues? Does the recent mass shooting make you reconsider your position or rhetoric. Now, this is, again, the point uh, in the game where 9 out of 10, hell, 99 out of 100 people running for office would capitulate, would grovel, would apologize. Here was Neil's... You say, are you a man or a mouse? And 99 would say, pass the cheese. Here's what Neil said in response to the Southern Poverty Law Center's question. 
quote, the fact that the Biden administration is currently engaged in ethnic cleansing against white Americans, quite literally replacing the majority population of this nation with compliant third world peasants who will guarantee the Democratic Party a permanent majority, makes the great replacement a reality rather than a theory. Now, it doesn't get any stronger than that. I don't care who you are, how old you are. Well, to use an old Southern phrase, that strong as Garrett Snuff. Neil, I salute you. That's the way to do it. Well, thank you. You know, it's funny about that. They have this this like automatic placing the word theory after the word great replacement, even if it doesn't make any grammatical sense. Right. So my platform said in, end the great replacement. But in their question, they said that my platform said ending the great replacement theory. So it doesn't even make any sense. They're just programmed to put the <laughs> word theory in there. <laughs> That's funny. All right. Well, it's just a theory. Why would you bother with it? It just goes to show. Yeah. Uh, again, Neil is a guy who's already been very much battle tested. Now, as a man who's lived his life under fire, that is a dire adult life anyway. I value the company and the friendship of men who have equally paid the price and have walked through that fire. It Neil stands has done up, it. and as my wife's grandfather used to say, he'll call a spade a dirty. Shovel. I knew that was going to get mentioned before the end of the night. Well, let's go back to the book. The book, of course, is the honorable cause of free South. Uh, Our entire Confederate History Month series this year sort of revolved around this book. But I'm going to read now, and Keith, I think this is going to be something you'll be able to relate to as the elder statement of our triumvirate here on the air tonight. And this is what Neil writes. If we fail, life is not worth living. We have to understand this. Everything that we love and cherish about our country, all that is pure and good on this earth, is directly tied to the reclamation of our southern nation. Remember and never forget what we are fighting for. The Andy Griffith show has always been one of my favorite programs. Mayberry, North Carolina, the uh, fictional town that it was set in is a perfect image of mid-century Southern life. Our enemies tell us that Mayberry never existed. They're wrong. Hundreds, maybe thousands of Mayberries existed all over the South. Can you attest to that, Keith? Yeah, I absolutely can. And I can tell you rural is good. Urban is bad. I've, you know, if there's anything in the last, 20 years that has been proven to me is that, you know, all of these great thinkers of the past were right. You know, cities are the cesspools and, uh, you know, the right values and the good people are out in the rural areas. And that's what the South represents. Rural wisdom, rural rectitude. And Neil, these are the communities we wish to restore. This is what your chapter is about, uh, a, a, an organic nation that is tied by blood and faith, correct? And it did exist yeah, before. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Keith put it perfectly. And, and that's, that's exactly the point, is that these towns used to exist. You know, they're, they're dying. They are dying, and we're in danger of losing them forever. So, if 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 we don't act now to save them and to rebuild them, you know, this is not—it's not lost art. We can still do this. Um, it, it's just going to take a lot of a lot of time, a lot of effort, and a lot of uh, purging of the negative elements that that now plague. Well, see, globalism country. killed a lot of it by taking out the economic industries and engines that these com- these towns relied on for to be viable economically and with America and its global ambitions uh, descending, waning, 
that's probably a good sign because I think America is going to have to rely on its own people and its own industrial capacity in the future, and that's going to be good for rural America and the South in particular. Well, Neil mentioned it. You know, you get off the dollar and options present themselves that don't currently exist. I was talking about that with Mike Gaddy on his RBN show earlier today as a guest on, on that program. It's just, you know, it, it, the only thing, we're not a nation. A nation is bound together by blood and soil. We are uh, a group of many nations living on one continent that have nothing in common except for consumerism. And when the economy right. falls, who knows what's going to happen. But in response, I think, to your uh, uh, chapter, although it's not specifically stated, Remy Tremblay for the French language journal that he writes for wrote this in his review, and I'd like to get your response to this, Neil, as we uh, close out this segment. This is what Remy writes. Let it be understood, Dixieland is an organic nation and possessed all its attributes before the Civil War. Southern nationalism aims precisely at one thing, the preservation of this people, which, like all others, is unique and deserves to survive. Contrary to what some outside eyes might think, it is also not necessarily white nationalism with the regional sauce aimed at legitimizing the cause. While Southern nationalism definitely has an ethnic dimension, it has not pursued the exact same goals as the American alternative right. Obviously a lot of overlap. Yes, we understand that. Obviously. Uh, Remy concludes, the idea of secession, which, according to a recent poll, received the support of 44% of Republican voters, obviously does not aim to recreate a copy of the United States in the South, a reduced version of this globalist Babylon uh, that has become this country whose decline is undeniable. What the authors of this book want is a new nation, based not on delusions of grandeur, but on the traditional way of life of a South that has not been assimilated. And, and what it is is this. <clears throat> Remember, Teddy Roosevelt said America should never be allowed to become a polyglot boarding house for the world. Well, the South is not. The South, unlike the North, did not have waves of immigrants coming over. We basically have the same founding stock now that we had back when the Civil War was about to be fought. Uh, Neil, final word to you, my friend. You can respond to uh, what Remy Tremblay wrote in his review or anything else you'd like to cover about your chapter or the cause in general that yeah. we haven't yet. Well, that's an Im important point that Remy raised that I also raised, which is that the the South as a nation, it predates America as a nation. American nationalism did not exist until the Gettysburg Address, basically. It did not uh, exist until after the war, whereas the South existed as a concrete place and a distinct people before even the American founding. Well, there, that you know, I haven't it's, thought about it. I haven't exists. thought about that. Yeah, that's right. It still exists now. You know, basically the people in the hills of Arkansas, it's not, you know, we didn't have Irish. We didn't have uh, Central Europeans. We didn't have Jews, all these people flooding into the South. We basically have the same stock, and that's why we are truly In the rural nation. South, yeah. yeah I we, mean, the, we, the cities we, are... Yeah, but we didn't even have it then. You know, in the Civil War, they just had waves of Irishmen coming off, and they were basically enlisted in the Army as soon as they stepped off the boat. But, see, the South has a distinct group of people, black and white, that have been here uh, basically since, you know, before the founding of our nation. Uh, uh, you know, not our nation, our country, the United States of America. Which is most certainly not our nation. Yeah, right. yeah, I'm about to say, let me correct myself. <laughs> Neil, final word to you. Yeah, well, uh, the, our biggest issue 
in the South would be doing something about the cities. The cities need to, I don't, I'm not exactly sure what the solution is, but Dickie Betts and Great Southern have a great song called Atlanta's Burning Down. It was a tragedy in the 1860s. Now, I'm not so sure. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> purification. <Yeah. laughs> Let us be purified by the fires of our tribulation. Is- it was put uh, in any event. Yeah, we love Atlanta, don't we? <laughs> but, uh, there's at least a couple of good guys there. We want to, the last of the Sodom there, uh, and Gomorrah. Hey, Neil, thank you for your good work. Godspeed to you as you graduate from law school. We'll talk to you again soon. Stay tuned, everybody. Your daily Liberty Newswire. You're listening to Liberty News Radio. USA News. I'm Jerry Varmash. White House aides are hinting that President Biden could announce his re-election bid as soon as Tuesday. Biden says he'll continue to stand by the FDA's evidence-based approval of the abortion pill mifepristone. Biden made the comment following the Supreme Court's decision to allow the drug to stay on the market. The 7-2 vote came after the court extended a temporary stay on a Texas federal judge's ruling to halt production and distribution of the drug. The U.S. Embassy is warning American citizens in Sudan to shelter in place until further notice. Thousands of Americans are believed to be in Sudan, and one U.S. citizen is among at least 400 people killed so far from fighting in the African nation. The Pentagon is ramping up forces in the region as the Biden administration weighs the possible evacuation of the embassy. Beach plans for many in and around Los Angeles were dealt a blow today. A sewage spill of 250,000 gallons is in the process of being cleaned up. This Long Beach resident is just trying to be reflective. It's going to be a nice weekend and can't go to the beach. Um, it's also very trashed and polluted. So, yeah, it just sucks. Beaches are also closed in Santa Monica and Marina del Rey. The FAA is heading into the busy travel season without a leader. Acting FAA chief Billy Nolan is stepping down. He made the announcement in a letter to agency staff. The Biden administration has had trouble filling the post. The previous pick, Phil Washington, withdrew his name from consideration after Republican leaders claimed he lacked the experience and the qualifications needed for the job. I'm John Schaefer. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is seeking federal aid for flood victims in Fort Lauderdale. At least two feet of rain fell in some parts of the county earlier this month, and up to a thousand homes were badly damaged. This is USA News. Greece is cheap. But the airfare costs a fortune. Paris? Not much closer. And again, airfare... What about Puerto Vallarta? Let's face it, flying anywhere is just too expensive. Wait, what's this? low-cost airlines with one call to low-cost airlines you'll drastically slash your travel costs we're talking insanely low airline prices to any of your favorite destinations where would you like to go london rome costa rica australia wow that's cheap so why wait call now to learn how crazy cheap it is to fly anywhere in the u.s or international our prices are so low we can't publish them the only way to get them is to call to instantly hear the most amazing best deals on airline travel it's that easy so call now and start packing 800-215-5141 that's 800-215-5141 sunny yesterday my life was filled with rain 
sunny You smiled at me and really eased the pain Now the dark days are done and the bright days are here My sunny one shines so sincere Sunny one so true I love you Anytime you hear that, you know Sonny Thomas isn't far away. We he's love in the him. house. <laughs> he's in the house. And I was just telling Sonny during the break, he, he's a guest I never have to prep for. Anytime Sonny Thomas is on the show, I know he is bringing ready-made radio to the airwaves and uh, just just uh, serve and you know, put on the plate and serve it up. Well, the thing is just throw on the ball and sit back and admire the broken field run. makes a very easy job for me when Sonny's on. Sonny Thomas is the founder of Resolution Radio, an affiliate network that also airs TPC. He is also the host of the Sonny Thomas Show and a very uh, long-time and good friend of ours. Sonny, it's great to have you back on tonight. Always a pleasure. Come on the show and talk to your listeners, brother. Well, listen, uh, you and I were talking, I don't know, a few weeks ago, I guess it was now, and I don't even remember exactly what was covered, but I do remember telling you, I said, Sonny, please try to remember exactly what you've said during this conversation, because it would make for great radio during our Confederate History Month coverage. Now, of course, we're not going to call Sonny a Yankee. Sonny's a Midwesterner. He was born from outside of the South. There are People who are northerners who were born outside of the South who are with us a lot more than native-born southerners are. Sonny is uh, like Neil Kumar, like everybody you've heard, well, really on this show from he's, day one. He's a, he's a spiritual brother. Yeah, there you go. Now, with that being said, Sonny, what's your message tonight to the uh, to the gang? Well, like I always say, I'm, I'm no Yankee. I'm a Buckeye and damn proud of it. Yankees belong hey, in the Northeast Quadrant of the United go. States. And we need to saw that particular section of the country off and just let it float out to sea like Barry Goldwater suggested. <laughs> Barry was right. The Acela Carter and the left coast, if we could somehow find some way for them to drift off into the ocean, we would be so much better off, wouldn't we, just Sonny? Oh, I've got one. I got uh, two words for you Andreas Fault. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have an Andreas Fault on the Acela Carter, uh, though. God <laughs> could make one. <laughs> God let it come. All right. So, seriously, though, uh, let's talk about. Why you wanted to come on this particular series, Sonny. I mean, you're always a welcome guest throughout the year, and anytime you've always got uh, something that, that you can contribute to the program, but you wanted to come on during Confederate History Month. Yeah, I, for one, I'm, I'm a big fan of history, and, of course, a lot of times uh, growing up and stuff, our school system was very uh, specific on omitting parts of history, obviously. They didn't talk about the battles or some of the real reasons of the Revolutionary War. They totally skipped the War of 1812. So it's basically just a skirmish. Uh, talk about the Mexican-American War very briefly, but they always want to hurry and fast forward it to 1861 with the war between the states, and basically it's all about slavery. And it's like that's not the case at all. And, and, uh, and they don't the want to biggest... say anything about people like Nathan Bedford Forrest. They want to talk about, um, you know, U.S. Grant and about uh, Abraham Lincoln and maybe Robert E. Lee, and that's it. Yeah, and, and that's another thing, too, to kind of underscore this. I mean, I've been to one of you guys' uh, events, and you had a presentation on the um, the Battle of Fort Pillow and how that was one of the first tabloid um, things where they really tried to spin it to make it look like Forrest was some big, huge aggressor, and it wasn't the case at all. When you look at the actual logistics of what happened and with the fact that it's a, it, it, they built that on a slope going down to the river, basically whoever's got the high ground is going to have the advantage. And, and so they make it look like it's a massacre, and it wasn't like that at all. They just had a strategic advantage. But they, they got a hate on Forrest because of his affiliation later on with the Klan. But the bottom line is this guy 
entered the rank as private and became major general in a very short amount of time, but he worked his way up every single space. He didn't skip just because he had a, a college degree or he was uh, some sort of prominence because he was a business owner. No, he came in arrest, uh, as a private and ended up being a, uh, a, a general because of the fact of his, his natural leadership skill. So, again, he just gets hated upon because of his later affiliation. But me well, as a big state I... sovereignty guy, I understand the history of the United States a lot more, and I understand that to most most Republicans, I always pose this question. When you see the name United States, what do you see emphasized first, United or States? I don't know about you, brothers and sisters, but I see the word States as being emphasized over United because of the fact that we were founded as a confederation. And when we sent the delegation to go fix the uh, the uh, Articles of Confederation because it wasn't working because a lot of the larger states were running the gambit, such as New York, Virginia, and Georgia, something needed to be done here. So we sent a delegation up there to go work on this, and the political nature of a convention is they could take it and do whatever they want with it. Thankfully, we had honorable men who uh, came there with, with um, various backgrounds of legal backgrounds as well as patriots, and they hammered out the Constitution in the United States, and not to mention that the Bill of Rights was a major issue to be considered afterwards, which if you read the um, the, the um, Federalist Papers, the Federalist Papers and the, the Anti-Federalist Papers, it really shows the arguments between the two factions, plus the fact you had a lot of issues between Jefferson and Hamilton on how the debt should be handled, and uh, there's a lot of fascinating information on Hamilton on how, who really run him. And, and why he was kind of put into the place where he was. But the biggest thing about that is you understand as us as states, when we agreed to the Constitution, that we gave up a little bit of power for a very specific uh, line of items in the Constitution that they were supposed to govern. And then the Bill of Rights says that shall not, which means basically says you can't do this. And the Ninth and Tenth Amendments basically says whatever we did include in here, you can't do that either. Because the power goes back to the states and goes back to the people. So and that is the various main reasons of why we formed this government. But it's also an issue of the various tariffs. And I know, Keith, you've gone over this a little bit as well, that the various tariffs that the North was imposing on the South, especially in the early to mid-1800s, was a major factor to the point where South Carolina, through the nullification um, convention, was looking at seceding in 1833. A lot of people don't know that, that South Carolina was already hitting that drumbeat as early as then because of the fact that the, the tariffs of uh, 1824 and 1828 had come to a head. And, and the biggest issue was, even though you had the Missouri Compromise and the uh, Northwest Ordinances, it says slavery can't go past this point, et cetera, et cetera, that when Buchanan was in office, he was pushing for huge tariffs from 15% to 37%. And Morale then up tariff. to forty-seven percent within four years. So, and Lincoln was not only going to enforce it; he was going to enact uh, uh, on it in any way necessary. And that was a final straw. Well, see, that was that was what people don't understand. That was the real cause of the Civil War. The South was paying eighty percent of the money into the federal treasury that ran the federal government, and the South got tired of having its cow melt through the fence. And it was not going to change. Uh, they realized that. And they were basically being treated like an agricultural colony by uh, Washington, D.C. 
We're not the yeah. United States. We've been the disunited States for too long. We've experimented. We've been to marriage counseling. This marriage is unsalvageable. We need to uh, have a, a national divorce. divorce. But uh, like most people that want a divorce, we prefer to have an uncontested divorce. Right. Well, another issue is, too, is the fact that the, um, the South, obviously, especially with the cotton gin and other agriculture equipment that was coming online, uh, which is just the very beginning of the Industrial Revolution, the South preferred to get equipment from England, which was much superior quality. And even with the transportation costs of shipping it overseas, you can make that up with a short amount of time after you get it up and running. Uh, the well, problem that's just was part of it, demanded. too, though, Sonny. The other part of it is this. Back then, nations did not tolerate trade imbalances. So, in other words, yes. England and France were not going to buy our agricultural products unless we bought something from them. And yes. the natural thing to buy from them was the products that they actually had uh, undisputed superiority in, like you said, manufactured products. Here's another situation, too, is the fact that uh, many Indian nations owned slaves as well, specifically Cherokee, Creek, Choctaw, and Chickasaw. The Cherokee owned the most. So they would have a natural alliance with the Confederate states because, in fact, they're already in the region and the fact that they owned slaves for their own reasons. So, again, but they were also independent nations. So people don't really realize as well that uh, there were other factors within the Confederate States. But then, you know, well, the biggest that, that issue was proven this, out by that, that was borne out by what happened. Stan Waddy, the Cherokee chief, was the last Confederate general to surrender. How there. about that? Of all the generals, uh, Stan Waddy, yes. he, he was a hero. I mean, he was a fighter. Uh, he, he fought for the right. He was successful. Uh, you know, I'll take him. Uh, but, uh, hey, Liz, let's skip the last break. I want to stick with Sonny all the way through the wall here. But uh, continue on, gentlemen. Hey, Sonny, you were talking about national divorce. You were telling us during the break. Uh, you've got your your idea of a national divorce far exceeds that of the most ambitious secessionists. Tell us about it. Absolutely, I have uh, I have spoken out in, at uh, various uh, events and stuff. Uh, one was in the South, actually, in Georgia, about four or five years ago. And it says very specifically, we need a fifty state secession, and we need to do that because it renders the federal government superfluous. Because what are you going to do? Send a military and go after fifty states? <laughs> Good luck. So that's a that's an interesting let's, thing, but I think we could do this. Let's but the first thing we have to do is we have to take over our state houses first, then worry about the national issue. Well, a fifty state secession. Now, I think what were we talking about, Keith? We're talking about how the cities are bringing down the states. And yeah, people... basically, basically, you know, our enemies are a very small geographical uh, part of the uh, the nation or the the country called the United States of America. It's just a few cities, places like. San Francisco, Los Angeles, uh, Chicago, New York City, New York, Portland, Sella Carter, see Portland, Oregon, Seattle, Atlanta, Washington, things like that. Yeah, Atlanta. Uh, yeah, and you know probably the Black Belt of uh, Mississippi and Alabama. But pun those are yeah right yeah no pun intended. But this is uh, see there's not much to be uh, you know. We have the, va the vast majority of the landmass that is the United States of America is red, and they would yeah. be with us. Now, the, here's the thing ways. what the leftists, what the wokest would say is people vote, land doesn't. How would you counter that argument? Well, they do vote, and they have voted Republican, so that shows that they're not with the woke agenda. The woke agenda is the tail that wags the dog. Basically, a small group of very influential and wealthy people are ruling America tyrannically against the wishes of the vast majority of the people. 
And we know what tribe that is. also the land. Exactly. We know what tribe With that is. With the idea of secession, yeah, we <laughs> do. conservative Eastern Oregon has already voted to join Greater Idaho and secede from the Portland-dominated state. So you already have secessionist movements afoot this very night, Sonny. And not, no, and not, not theory. Texas taken it, said that they're going to do it. They've taken it from theory to practice, yeah. Yeah, I support yeah, Cal you, you've, got, totally. you've got movements <laughs> going on in California. You've got the, the potential of three possibilities. You have a no-cal, so-cal split. You also have um, this, the state of Jefferson, which is basically an enclave of basically fairly astute whites that are tired of being taxated for everything the southern part of California does. So they've actually talked about having that particular enclave as the state of Jefferson uh, to be there as well. Not to mention, with me being from Ohio, we have a particular rivalry against Michigan over the Battle of Toledo. And uh, they were deciding whether Toledo belonged to the state of Ohio or the Michigan Territory. So it was actually came to uh, fisticuffs at the time, and they told Congress to figure this out. The problem is they gave Toledo to Ohio. And they gave the upper peninsula of the Wisconsin Territory to Michigan. Because I always wonder, how does Michigan have two peninsulae? How does that work? And so I basically call, if you're going to have any type of splitting going on, that either you give the, the UP of Michigan back to Wisconsin or you make it its own separate state. But unfortunately, there isn't that much there. And it probably ended up being Democratic because that's how they roll. You know what I mean? But again, well, like, I just got to say this quickly, and then to you, Keith. Eleven counties have already voted. I mean, these, <laughs> eleven. You know, this is this is happening to join to, to secede from Oregon and join Idaho. So, and when these uh, dominoes start to, to fall, how many more will follow? Because you know, we've talked about this almost uh, to the point of exhaustion about how just well, last year in Texas, the Republican Party of Texas at their annual convention in Houston voted to put secession on the ballot. So, well, see, we talk about California like it's a monolith, but really the only blue counties are the ones that are right on the coastline. All the other places, yes. like Bakersfield, Fresno, places like that, are red mm -hmm. counties. Right. Not only that, but here in Ohio, for example, we have more um, – we have more municipal uh, areas than any other state in the union because of the fact that we have, like, you know, the three C's. You got Cincinnati, Columbus, and Cleveland. You got Dayton, Toledo, Youngstown. So we have a lot of blue stuff there, but that we're still generally a red state, but in purple in many areas. So that's an issue in itself. But, well, you know, it's, the it's fact urban got, areas that have large numbers of blacks that are one. Yeah. And the other thing are college towns like Charlottesville, yes. Virginia, or Columbus, Ohio, places like that. But there's something else I also noticed too, Keith, that even you get in a little bit more rural counties, such as Greene County, which is just outside of Dayton, you have the city of Xenia, and I've noticed that they have a fairly decent uh, black population. We figured it out that basically if there's any type of county seat and they have any type of basic in infrastructure, such as sidewalks, for example, that even these smaller counties end up becoming enclaves for these uh low rent guys because the fact that they feed off of the you know off of the um, taxpayers money and stuff and so any type of stuff that goes on there we see that's where they start having centralization and then all of a sudden they start going blue in those towns well i can tell you what's happened in the south basically the cities attract people that uh where they are given tutorials by catholic charities and groups like this about how to manipulate government programs and regulations to get all this free stuff so that's where they are they go there because they want the free stuff and as a result they wound up they wind up being places that are essentially 
contrary to the so-called values that our nation was supposedly founded on of thrift and industry and, uh, you know, task orientation, things like that, they don't get done. They're places where people are lying about trying to find some way to make money without working. Well, not only that, but we used to be a saver nation. And then in the 1920s, when you start buying stocks on margin, that was the problem. I mean, even Joe Kennedy saw that. He said, when the shoe shine boy starts giving me stock advice, it's time to get the hell out. So he sold all this <laughs> stuff six months prior to the collapse because of the fact that he saw it coming. So he actually bought the Kennedy compound with the um, spoils he got from selling all of his stocks and stuff off. And, and if you read books about the Kennedy boys, a lot of them didn't even know there was depression going on because they were essentially insulated from all that. Well, it's interesting because John went overseas to Germany in the 1930s, and, and actually for his uh, his thesis statement, he wrote about how Hitler had actually uh, rejuvenated a lot of their economy in a short amount of time, yet the United States was still mired in depression because they thought they could spin their way out of it. So it's interesting that Kennedy would One actually thing they have never an tell you about like Hitler. Well, one thing they never tell you about Hitler today is that in 1938, Time magazine made him Man of the Year because yes. of the economic rejuvenation that he engineered for uh, the nation of Germany. Now, John Kennedy, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, Mr. Kennedy, I can tell you this about him. I've got a little interesting sidebar. Henry Loeb was a Jew I would like to have set loose on the whole nation in the world. He was the mayor of Memphis during the garbage worker strike that culminated in the death of Martin Luther King. <clears throat> he uh -huh. was a Jew. He had an Ivy League education. He went to Brown University. But he was six foot six, was a PT boat captain in World War II, and looked and sounded like John Wayne. <laughs> and <clears throat> he was t what he told me was this. He left Temple Israel in Memphis in order to come to the church I was going to, St. John's Episcopal at the time, because that's where his wife had gone. He was married to a shiksa that had been a maid of cotton. You know, he was, you know, he was kind of like George Washington, first in peace, first in war, first in the hearts of his countrymen. And right. when he came over there, I was in the high school, Sunday school class, and I asked him why he left Temple Israel. He said, well, I'll be honest with you. He said, I got tired of being harangued by Rabbi Wax every Sabbath about what I needed to do in the garbage worker strike. He said, Rabbi Wax believed in the separation of church and state, just not the separation of synagogue and state. I thought that was a pretty <laughs> good comment. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> but, but again, so I, he was I a think staunch it, segregationist. Well, again, that's the thing that gets me is we've been pushing desegregation for all these decades, and we've shown it doesn't work. Now the blacks actually want to segregate themselves. I'm like, fine. You know what? Then let's reverse some Supreme Court rulings. Let's start with Brown versus Board of Education. I totally agree with that. So I think that we need to start really looking at some of these cases and start bringing it up to our Supreme Court justices. Hey, I think some of these decisions yeah, in the past need to be looked at and reversed. Well, since they reversed Plessy versus Ferguson with Brown versus Board of Education, they need to do the same thing with Brown. Brown basically was a violation of due process. Appellate mm -hmm. cases are supposed to be decided by stare decisis, that's similar case precedent, common law precedent, as they call it, or if it involves a statute or a constitutional provision like the Brown decision did, the 14th Amendment, you look to statutory history or statutory construction. They lost on all of those inquiries, so what did they do? They based a decision on an unprecedented basis a sociological paper by a guy named Kenneth Clark, his so-called doll studies, 
which were even mm-hmm. then dishonestly presented to the court. He didn't tell the people. Well, basically, the doll studies were this. They got black children and showed them a white doll and a black doll, and they said, which one do you like best and why? And if they picked the white doll more often than the black doll, that was supposed to show that they were suffering from some type of, uh, you know, psychological impairment because of segregation. What they didn't tell the court was that they ran these studies in two places. One was Massachusetts that had an integrated public school system, and the other, Arkansas, that had a segregated school system. And guess what? Even though the black children in both places picked the white doll more often, the black children in the segregated school system in Arkansas picked the black doll more often than the black children in the integrated school system in Massachusetts, which would seem to indicate that segregation is good for their self-esteem and not the other way around. Right. And like I said, I, to, to me, I think the last true war, battle of the Civil War was fought when uh, Governor Wallace let that black girl into the school. I think that was a major, major thing. He should have never blinked. He should have he should have had still fast on that one because well, the fact I'll, that I'll, I, I'll tell you who I think never should have blinked was Orville Faubus. He got the Arkansas militia out and then in violation of possible. How many years earlier was that than Wallace? About seven? Uh, yeah, about that. Six or seven, something like that. But then Eisenhower sent the 101st Airborne down there to oppose the Arkansas militia which was a direct violation of the Posse Comitatus Act, which was the first act that the South passed in Congress after they got after the end of Reconstruction. That was that the federal military would never again be used as a police force against American citizens. And basically, Fawbish should have just fought it out there in Little Rock with them. That would have really brought things to a head. But unfortunately, uh, when all is said and done, more will be said than done very often. Well, here's the problem. I do believe it's that if it's not the if it's not the Patriot Act, it's the Warner Defense Bill, where basically they they've eliminated posse comitatus. So now the federal government can go in there at any given time now and, and force their will. So here's the problem: where does the state sovereignty come in? Because if you have a state that says that we declare that we are going to do this and and not do that, even use nullification, Biden can send in uh, a damn division and try to overtake that governor's mansion. That, that's a serious issue to raise, gentlemen, because of the fact that we're talking about secession. But some of the tools that we have given ourselves after we learned some of those valuable lessons from history have now been taken away from us. I mean, the Constitution was to prevent people like Biden. First of all, he's a usurper in the first place. And secondly, he oversteps his of boundaries. Of course, it's George W. Bush that passed the Patriot Act, which uh, it, is the source. Exactly. Of- and no one read. See, all- no one could read it. Well, see, the thing is, too, that what we have, we need to just ignore the federal government in every way. They can even send troops in. Ignore them. You know, do what you want to do. <laughs> All right, well, listen, hang on. Let, wait, wait, real quick, son. Can't state massacre ring a bell there, brother? I mean, you can put flowers <laughs> in the gun barrels, but don't shoot out of them. Uh, following <laughs> in the footsteps of our ancestors. Hey, Sonny, listen, before we run out of time, I want to be sure to ask you the most important question. Tell us a little more about Resolution Radio. Tell us a little bit more about the Sonny Thomas show. show. To know Sonny is to love him. You've heard the kind of commentary. Yeah, right. Yeah, you've heard the kind of commentary you're going to get out of Sonny. You're going to get a lot more of the Sonny Thomas show. How can they find you? ResolutionRDO.com. You can follow us at Sonny Thomas Show on Wimkin, Getter, Gab, Twitter, and Telegram. And at ResolutionRDO and Getter, Gab, Twitter and Telegram, but on Twitter you have to add a one behind it. So that's how you can find a lot of listings of our programs um, as well. 
And uh, my show is on Thursdays uh, at 7 p.m. We have also the political cesspool. We also feature um, other programs on there as well. We have the Jay Dyer Show. We have uh, Kate Daly Show. We also have uh, Nordic Frontier, which is the English language program of the Nordic Resistance Movement in Scandinavia, as well as um, uh, Fash the Nation, which is also a new program as well, which is a little bit longer in length usually over three hours as well as TPC. So there's a lot of information you can catch on there on any given day and uh, be able to listen as well as American Dissident Voices with Kevin Strom. So we have a wide variety of commentators who talk about a myriad of topics. Uh, and again, I'm working on doing a big program to have people talk about the 50-state secession. And James and Keith, you're always welcome to come in and comment, brothers. We got to do it. Let's 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 make a date let's do for it. it. Yeah. And there he is, Sonny Thomas, sound as the gold standard for the dollar, and strong as Garrett Snow. He's great. And folks, you can link over to the Sonny Thomas show at the top of my Twitter handle at uh, James Edwards TPC. We tagged him for tonight's uh, weekly show promo. Link over to his Twitter handle. You can get all that information for Resolution Radio, another network that syndicates the political cesspool. We're thankful to Sonny for that and for his work and service to the cause for Sonny Thomas and Neil Kumar and Gene Andrews, our guests this evening for Keith Alexander, for our entire staff and crew in Utah and in Florida. I am your host, James Edwards, and we will talk to you next week when we wrap up Confederate History Month 2023. Good night, everybody. You're listening to Resolution Radio, 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 ResolutionRDO.com.